Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, I'm really excited to be here with you recording this podcast on the Old Testament. This has kind of been a a work in progress here for a little bit. Yes, I am excited as well. Yeah, we've got this episode we were recording as an introduction to the Old Testament. We thought, There's some things to talk about here before we actually go into the Come Follow Me readings. And I also thought, why not introduce ourselves since I'm new to the podcast and listeners may be new to the podcast. How about you go first, Ben? Oh, sure. So um, I live in Missouri and, you know, as we're coming here to this discussion of of the Old Testament, I, you know, Christopher, you're going to talk about it as well, but we, we do kind of throw out there. We're not biblical scholars. That's not our purpose in in doing this. Um, But uh, we do have a passion for the scriptures and discussing them. And and so we we do feel that there's some some great value we can add there. I've taught seminary for several years. I'm not currently a seminary teacher, but I have taught early morning seminary, which is is different than just seminary, right? (laughs) Okay. Did you teach the Old Testament? Um, No, I have not taught the Old Testament in seminary. Now that you bring it up, I didn't think about that. I've taught all the others, but I've not taught the Old Testament. And the reason is the church like changed up curriculum in the middle of when I would have, because <laughs> we haven't right. had Old Testament, you know, in in church curriculum in a while because they they changed thing around. But um, anyway, I uh, I have an IT business here in Missouri. We we manage computers and servers and IT infrastructure for small businesses. Um, I went to BYU. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern Studies in Arabic, the, the MESA program that uh, BYU has. <clears throat> I graduated in 2008. I minored in Italian uh, language, uh, served a mission in Italy. So that's kind of where that minor came from, went and did Italian language and literature. Um, so I speak uh, Italian, Spanish, Arabic, and bad English. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> do you speak american american um so <laughs> you know this is funny chris I'm, I'm reading some of the hobbies you listed for me here you, you have reading the old testament reading about the old testament listening to lectures and podcasts about the old testament podcasting about the old testament <laughs> listening to books that christopher recommends about the old testament these are all new hobbies i've had within the past month <laughs> but uh you know despite that i Technology kind of is a general hobby of mine. Um, and uh, so, yeah, all those things I, I really enjoy. What was it the old intro said? This is our life and we love it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's been, I'm Christopher Hurtado. I live in Bakersfield, California. I am also not a biblical scholar. I am an ex-philosophy, political science, and English professor. I'm also an entrepreneur in language services and I'm a full-time stay-at-home homeschool dad and house husband and PhD student in Arabic and Islamic studies. I earned my BA also in Middle East studies in Arabic, like Ben, although he graduated before I st- we didn't we weren't at the BYU at the same time. No, I we? never took any classes. I don't with think you. so. Yeah. 
And then uh, I second majored uh, in philosophy at BYU and Provo, and I got an MA in nonproliferation and terrorism studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey. And that was the first, I was in the first graduating class with the terrorism studies master's. I'm also a polyglot with English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, Arabic, Latin, and ancient Greek. And I've got some dialects of Arabic and classical Arabic. You probably know a dialect or two, don't you, Ben? Sure. Yeah. Egyptian and also Levantine. Jordan, or Shami. Shami. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Levantine, Shami. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Ordoni, Jordanian. Right. And like Ben, I have these new hobbies of reading the Old Testament, reading about the Old Testament, listening to lectures and podcasts about the Old Testament, <laughs> and podcasting about the Old Testament. I read a lot, I and I do recommend books to Ben and everybody around me. If you've been around me, you know that. I read a couple hundred books a year, over 200 books a year. So I'm reading a book every a book or two every day or two. Yeah. If you have a conversation with Christopher and he doesn't recommend a book to you within like the first five minutes, something's wrong. You should like check his <laughs> pulse or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yeah. And um, what else can I say? You know, I've got, I've got nine kids. My wife have his, hers, and ours. You've got a few kids, Ben. Yeah. We've got three kids. Yeah. Uh, and so I became a stay-at-home homeschool dad when my kids became teens. We've you know, we've always been a homeschool family. And at some point, this often happens, you know, moms start to feel out of their depth as homeschool moms when the kids hit their teen years. Sure. And then I had this PhD plan. And so it just worked out where I could stay home with the kids and be their homeschool dad and work on a PhD. And my wife could stay at home work. We've always been all home all the time. We were both entrepreneurs. We've both worked at home one way or the other. So that's our life. That's great. So then the next thing we want to go into is why are we having this episode as an introduction to the Old Testament? This isn't this isn't something you did with Shiloh for the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants, right? Right. Not not particularly, no, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to have an episode here where we go into that a little bit and we want to let you know where we're coming from and where we're going. And so Ben, one of the first things you mentioned when we talked about why do this is we're dealing with ancient versus restoration scripture here, right? With with the Old Testament. Why don't you talk about that a little bit, Ben? Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we've got what we call our standard works. You know, we've got Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. And there is there is kind of a distinct difference um, in how we approach Scripture, um, how we approach Scripture that has come to us specifically through uh, the Restoration, through Joseph Smith as opposed to ancient scripture that has come to us through the Christian tradition, um, Christian and Jewish tradition, and and been translated by scholars, as opposed to translated or revealed through our prophetic, our specific prophetic tradition, right? And, and there ends up being, you know, a, a difference there in how we approach that scripture. And that's very specifically summarized by our eighth article of faith, right? Because it says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. So there is this sense in Latter-day Saint tradition that the Bible, while we do look at it as the word of God and, and, and so forth, we recognize that there are maybe significant errors in translation that can lead, you know, can, can mislead us as to what is really meant and intended there. 
And I think, I think that is actually a good part of our tradition um, to approach scripture in, in a way that's not too fundamental, fundamentalist, right? Which we'll get into. Um, but I do think a little bit where we, we do misstep sometimes is by then treating the rest of our, our scripture, what we might call restoration scripture in a wholly different way. And I think it's important for us to recognize um, what scripture is and isn't, which we'll, we'll have a discussion about. But in any case, you know, our restoration scripture, particularly the Book of Mormon and then like Book of Abraham, so forth, we call these translations, but they're not translations in the same way that the Old Testament and New Testament are translations, right? These are these are Joseph Smith style translations. And there's a whole long discussion to be had about that. And we talked about that when we did Doctrine and Covenants, we kind of got into it. That the Joseph Smith's definition of translation is is much broader. And and deals a little bit more in the revelation realm with of things, as opposed to translation that we might look at with with our King James version or or you know new new standard versions of of translations of of the Bible. And that it does is kind of spelled out when we look at the Joseph Smith translation, right? Because <laughs> it's like oh, when you see the Joseph Smith translation, you see oh, Joseph Smith when he says the word translation. He doesn't mean it in the same way that a scholar might mean translation. And so it's important for us to to approach ancient scripture um, with that in mind um, if we're coming from our Latter-day Saint tradition. So, Yeah, that's really important. And we'll go into translation a little bit more as we go through this episode. So I had this Baptist neighbor before I moved here in Bakersfield. I, I lived in one place for a year or so when I came here, and I had this great neighbor, and I really miss being you know, neighbors with him. I still get to see him and talk to him once in a while, but not as much. He's a Baptist preacher, really good guy. And when we first met, we talked a lot about religion. You know, he, he being a preacher, I being a, a scholar of religion and someone who really studies my own tradition in depth too, you know, other than, than the comparative studies I do with other religions, whether it be Islam or others. And I remember him telling me at one point, he said, and he was trying to distinguish between him and between me and in between his religion as a Baptist and my religious religion as a Latter-day Saint. And he said, we go by what the Bible says. <laughs> and I just thought, and I don't mind saying this. If you ever, if you ever hears this podcast, I said to him what I'm saying now, which is, no, you go by what you say the Bible says. <laughs> right. And, and so do, and we go by what the Bible says too. We go by what we say the Bible says. And so there's this quote I have here from Thomas Carlyle from his book, The French Revolution. He says, in every object, so this isn't just in the Bible, in every object, there is inexhaustible meaning. The eye sees in it what the eye brings means of seeing. And so then there are these assumptions that we bring to the text. And that's part of it too, right? There's the eye with which we see has these assumptions. And we'll get into hermeneutics and exegesis later on too. But there are these assumptions that we have, and some of them are assumptions that come down to us that we inherited from the ancient interpreters. And then there's some other assumptions too. There, there are a couple of books that you and I have looked at, Ben. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah. So um, one of one of the books that I'm I'm not all the way through yet, but uh, has already presented to me some some very good uh, ways of of grappling the scriptures here was uh, the the book called Misreading Scriptures with Western eyes. And basically the, the concept is like you were saying, it's that because of our culture and, and upbringing and, and everything that we're steeped in, we approach scripture with 
assumptions um, that we don't always, we're not always conscious of. And some of those assumptions are pretty easy to recognize and some are very difficult to recognize. And some, even if we recognize them, they are even more difficult to set aside because they're so deep within the way that we we think about the world that changing that to even view something different is is very difficult. And so um, I don't know that uh, it it's necessarily always important to completely set those aside, but it is important to be aware of them as we approach scripture so that we recognize, hey, if this if this thing doesn't make sense to me or doesn't fit or I can't figure out how, you know, what the scripture means, most likely it's because we are coming to it with some sort of assumption that we may not even be conscious of. And just recognizing that can allow us to step back and reapproach the scripture in in a different way. But we kind of have to have the tools to approach it with. And that's, you know, kind of that's where human hermeneutics comes in. And if we don't we don't know, we can say, oh, there's some assumption I'm making here, but I don't really know what the assumption is, or I don't know what I, assumption I should be making. Then we we have to go to some tools that help us uh, really change our assumptions around, right? Yeah. So we want to talk about hermeneutics too. You know, the other thing that can happen is we can bring, maybe you talked about not understanding something. There's also the possibility that we, that we do understand something or rather that we think we understand mm. it. And it turns out that we're misunderstanding right. again right. because of our Western eyes. Now, I read that book before I recommended it to you, Ben, and that is a really good book. And, and there's another one by the same author. And by the way, you should know, I haven't always read all the way through a book I recommend. Sometimes it's so good, I recommend it before I right. finish. Right. And maybe sometimes I'll recommend a book that I think is good for you that I may not be interested in, but it looks <laughs> like something you'd be interested in. So you can always ask me. You know, I, there's another book by the same authors. I think it's by the same two authors, Misreading Scriptures with Individualist Eyes. Yeah, yeah. So that's another another thing. And we'll go into that a little bit more, I think, later in the podcast. So here's a, a final comment about the assumptions that we bring to the text. And, and I think it, this quote, it goes into a little bit of some of the things we've already talked about. But I really wanted to quote from James Faulkner. And James Faulkner is a professor of philosophy at BYU, and he wrote this great little book called Scripture Study, Tools and Suggestions. And so this is from his book, and he says, To the extent that we continue to recognize the prophets and Latter-day Revelation, and to the extent that we're taught by Scripture rather than merely by the thinking inherent in our language and culture. So you see, he's already suggesting that we can learn from Scripture instead of just, you know, through the lens of our culture and language we can escape the fate of Greek thought. So when he says Greek thought here, it's important to realize that, you know, the scriptures that we're talking about here, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, these are Semitic texts. Mm -hmm. Although there's a Septuagint, you know, in Greek, we'll get into that later, but the, the thought that goes into these texts originally is Semitic. And so it's a different way of thinking than our way of thinking. Our way of thinking is Greek. We have the inheritance of a Greek way of thinking of the Western Greek philosophical tradition. So he says, but we must be on guard for our language will often deliver us over to that fate unawares again, to the fate of our language and our culture. I believe that we most often mingle the philosophies of men with scripture. When we try to understand scripture from the understanding of the world given to us in what we call common sense, 
So one of the biggest caveats, one of the biggest dangers in, in reading the scriptures is actually common sense. You go into this thinking, oh, I've got common sense. I'm, I'm good. But he says common sense is much more dangerous than any specific philosophical doctrine because it combines philosophical positions that have become commonplace and taken for granted with the effects of language, such as the effect that Indo-European languages, which focus on nouns, have on Indo-European thinking, which takes the material thing, and this is because Hebrew thinking focuses more on verbs. Right. So, takes the material thing to be metaphysically fundamental. So, this reminds me of something that Ayn Rand said. It always starts with Ayn Rand. <laughs> you and I both went through a, a, an, Ayn, an Ayn Rand period, didn't you, Ben? Not particularly, but Not I, really? I definitely... Okay. Maybe, yeah. maybe an objectivist. Uh, <laughs> I'm familiar with thinking. it, but I wouldn't say I went through yeah. it. So one thing she said that, that I actually agree with, and you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I, I sometimes quote uh, Abraham Lincoln, too. <laughs> you know, Ayn Rand said, if you don't actually consciously choose a philosophy or an ideology or both, right? She, she dealt with philosophy and ideology. Then you're actually going into interpreting the world with a philosophy that you didn't choose con consciously, right? Yeah, if so, you don't choose one, one's going to choose you. One's going to choose you. So yeah. you have all these undigested slogans, as she puts it, uh, that may even be contradictory. You never actually take the time to examine, I believe this and I believe that, and you never put this and that side by side to realize that they're contradictory one to the other. And so I think what Faulkner here is saying is something very similar. He's saying, if you don't actually have a hermeneutic, where we're going next with this, this discussion, that you've chosen consciously, then one has chosen you, to put it in your words, Ben. Yeah. And so he says, common sense is more dangerous because it seems natural as if there were no alternative. We seldom think about what common sense tells us is true or how it determines the way we think about the world. Prophets and revelation provide us with a considerable safeguard against common sense and the concepts built into our language. Careful attention to scripture and the way that those who wrote scripture thought provides another safeguard. So now we really have to be able to go into how they thought. Right. And so later on, we'll talk a little bit more about the difference between Hebrew and Greek thought. But now let's go into hermeneutics. And so to actually open up the conversation about hermeneutics, I wanted to bring out, you know, of course, what is hermeneutics? How would you define hermeneutics, Ben? So we just did this podcast on basically on hermeneutics, right? On the, the sister, our sister podcast, the Latter-day Contemplation podcast. So if you kind of want a, a little bit deeper dive, I wouldn't say it's super deep, but <laughs> a little bit deeper dive into the concept of hermeneutics. Uh, go over and listen to that podcast. I think it's just over an hour we got in on that. So uh, pretty good. Basically, hermeneutics is the is the lens, to use a metaphor, that you approach the scriptures with. It's the tool that you use to extract meaning from the scriptures. And so we say lens because, okay, let's say you can, you know, when when you look at something, you could use a a red lens and you look at it and everything looks red, right? Or you use a yellow lens and everything looks yellow. So when you approach scripture, you're always looking at it through a lens. You can't, you can't not look at it through a lens. Um, so hermeneutics is, is the hermeneutic that you're approaching scripture with is the lens that you're looking at it through how, how it is, what system, what process, thought process you go through to extract meaning from the, the scriptures. Um, and you can either be conscious of which one you're using or really 
unconscious of which one you're using. But if you want to get meaning from the scriptures, you can't have no hermeneutic whatsoever. It's, it's, it's just a part of it. You may not realize that's what you're doing, but you are. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that episode, Ben. I had actually forgotten about that. And that's episode 52, How We Read the Scriptures on Latter-day Contemplation, our sister podcast. And you can find that podcast, uh, same place uh, you find this one, whether it's on our site at latterdaypeacestudies.org. Yeah. Yeah, or using your favorite podcast app. And we'll talk more about podcast apps at the end of the episode too. And in case you don't know about that, we'll go into that a little bit. So when we look at hermeneutics, there's, I want to actually think about, you know, what the problems are that we would run into and how a hermeneutic can actually help us to solve those problems. So here at Latter-day Peace Studies, for example, and by the way, I know this is for a lot of people going into the Old Testament, a lot of whoever reads the Old Testament, whether they're Jews, Christians, and even Latter-day Saints as a particular set of Christians, we see divine violence and divinely sanctioned violence. And the question is, how do we explain that? And how do we deal with it? And so our hermeneutic is going to help us to deal with that. And then there's biblical criticism, what we call modern biblical scholarship or biblical criticism or historical criticism. And there was sort of this one, two, three punch that that brought which was, you know, with well, that there was evolution, there was the documentary hypothesis, which we'll go into, and there's archaeology. And so at, at that point, when this happened, then there become these multiple choices that you have, you have to choose one. This is a multiple choice quiz, guys. You didn't know there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> so we can, we have to deal with this, right? What do we, how do we deal with this, you know, with evolution, documentary hypothesis, archaeology, you know, where science and where history, and again, through archaeology, modern history that you, that uses archaeology and a better understanding of ancient languages than we had in the past. Yeah. How do we, how do we deal with the challenge this poses to a conventional way of reading the scriptures? Right, the one that the that we inherited from the ancient interpreters, right. and the one that actually occurred, ironically, out of a as a as a reaction to modern biblical criticism, which was this fundamentalist approach, this doubling down, this so to speak, doubling down, defending the Bible. So here are the choices, Ben. You've got number one, you could just avoid it altogether, and that's valid. You could just say, you know what, I'm just reading the Bible religiously. That's it, and you can take this devotional approach. And there is this concept of sacred history that even if it's not historical in a modern history way, it can be it, th- that we can tell the stories or it can tell us stories that are going to strengthen our faith, something like that. There's the option of being analytical. You can analyze it. So you can avoid it or you can analyze it. If you analyze it, this means you're reading the Bible critically. You can defend it. Now, here's the thing about defending it. If you defend it, then you actually become unable to read it. And you can compare the, there's a, a guy named Peter Enns. Peter Enns wrote a book, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. And I heard Pete Enns on the Maxwell Institute podcast. I think it was episode number 16, so it was early on. Yeah. And I'd actually first heard Peter Enns on the, on the podcast from a later episode when he wrote The Sin of Certainty, which is subtitled something like, Why God Wants Your Trust More Than Your Correct Belief. Hmm. Something like that, where, where pistis, the word that we translate faith, really means trust. Hmm. And he's bringing that out. So he says, you're actually unable to read it. And I, and I think what he's saying there, Ben, tell me what you think. I think he's saying that if you want to defend it, then that becomes 
in a sense, an impossibility because you're not actually, you can't, the impossibility is in reading it because you're not actually reading it because you don't understand what it is. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're not engaging with it in the way that it was intended to, to come to you. You're engaging with it in, with a different intent and your intent is to be polemic, right? So like we, we talked about this a little bit in our Doctrine and Covenants uh, discussion that that sometimes when we're we're looking in the scriptures so that we can prove someone else wrong, we we forget to look in the scriptures for for God. You know, <laughs> right? There's that too. And and by the way, you're probably proof texting at that point, right? Um, I know that I've had so many people, you know, tell me, and this is one of the reasons why I quit social media several years ago. And, you know, that I just thought if I have one more person that tells me what the Quran says, who hasn't actually read it, that's it. I quit. And that happened. I just said, you know what? That's it. I quit. And so you get these people, they tell you the Quran says this. And first of all, they're reading a translation. They don't know Arabic. They don't read the verse before or the verse after, even in their translation. They don't question the translation the way some people don't question the King James Bible as the literal word of God in King James, you know, in Elizabethan English, right? That's the word of God. Hmm. So we have avoid, analyze, defend. Another option is to synthesize. This is the option we're taking, right? This is the option we're choosing, which is to read the Bible critically and religiously. Hmm. Both. We're, we're going to have it both ways, both and. And then, of course, there's the option of quitting where you just say, you know what? I'm just not going to read the Bible. <laughs> I don't see value <laughs> and, in it. Yeah. I don't see value in it anymore. And so those are the options. We're choosing synthesis. Hmm. So that brings us to this question that you brought up earlier, Ben, which is, what is scripture? Now, we've got a great quote here from Wilford Cantwell Smith in what is, what is scripture, a comparative approach. Do you want to read that, Ben? Sure. Yeah. So he says, any scripture, Gita, Bible, a Buddhist sutra, or whatever, and any verse or term within it means what it in fact means and has meant to those for whom it has been meaningful. So the the references here, for those that, that don't know, you know, Gita means Bhagavad Gita. So um, we've got these these Hindu texts, um, Bible, obviously, and then Buddhist Sutra would be some of the, the Buddhist texts. We use the oh, word text here intentionally too. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, we're already distinguishing between scripture and sacred text. Um, that's where that's where I think we're going next, right. right? So scripture is a little bit more distinctly a Western type of way of looking at sacred texts, whereas you know as you go farther east, scripture is is less of an important distinction or term that that would apply to their sacred text. So yeah, even even uh, time was when scripture just meant the Holy Bible. Yeah, it, it was even not only just not only Western, but only Christian, right? Right. Of course, that included the, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. So Smith says, Scripture is a social phenomenon and therefore must be thought of only in relation to communities that making make it meaningful. So what we're saying here is that Scripture aren't just texts. Scripture are the, the way that people relate to the text. So it's the relationship between me and you and the text, right? Yeah. You and I, right, uh, are part of a religious community. And so we have a relationship with each other and with these sacred texts, and that's what scripture is. And so that's what we're talking about. Now, just as a disclaimer, we're probably going to be sloppy and call 
sacred text scriptures when sure. we talk about our scriptures <laughs> because we're used to doing it. But I think it helps to look at this this way. And so finally, Smith, I have another quote from Smith. He says, scripture has no ontology by which he means it doesn't have a being qua being, a being in and of itself. There's That there's no possibility, he says, of explaining what scripture is apart from the human beings who make it scripture. Right. Scripture is a subjective term. It's not an objective it really term, is. right? So scripture yeah, it really is. is only defined in the context of people who relate to it as such. And and this comes out like when we, I mean, we're going to get into this, but this comes out when we talk about especially apocryphal texts in the Bible, because um, you know this this was a discussion we had with Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith gets into apocryphal stuff. And basically says, yeah, there's there's truth and value there. You just have to read it with the spirit. And when Shell and I had this discussion, it's just like, you know what? That actually is a great statement. And it doesn't apply just to the Apocrypha. It applies to everything. You know, all scripture or sacred texts that we approach can have truth in it when we approach it with the spirit. And so that's the relationship there that we're talking about. People, Some people are going to view Apocrypha as scripture. You know, that's scripture. And other people aren't going to view it that way. You know, and so what defines a scripture is is that relationship to the text. Yeah, and we'll go into apocrypha a little bit more too. So that said, you know, my one of my favorite books of scripture, and I love the Quran. I love reading the Quran. And one of the things I love about it is the way it talks to. It's not really talking to me in the first person because it, it's it's talking to Muhammad. People say Muhammad doesn't show up in the in the Quran a lot. Well, that's because it's first person God speaking right. to Muhammad. But when I when you read it, when I read it, I feel like God is talking to me because it is in that form of address. And then there's the Gita. I love the Bhagavad Gita. Like um, Thoreau before me, like Oppenheimer before me, I am tempted to become a beginner again and take on Sanskrit. <laughs> My wife thinks I'm a glutton for punishment. Wow. I, I do tend Brave. to do this a lot. <laughs> yeah, I just love it. So Let's focus in a little bit more on our topic at hand, which is the Old Testament. So now we have the question, what is the Bible? Yeah. We've talked about what is scripture. What is the Bible, Ben? The Bible, there, there's there's different ways you could kind of relate it. But um, Rob Bell has a pretty succinct definition of this in, in, in his book, What is the Bible? Really good. You know, these are all books we recommend um, people if they want to get into some of these topics more. These are great books to read or, or listen to. So he basically talks about the Bible as an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories. And it's important to bring out yeah. here that the word That's Bible- That's actually in the subtitle. Yeah, yeah. So that the word Bible is just from the Greek, you know, biblios, which means a, a library. So the word Bible literally just means a collection of books or library. So the Bible isn't referring to a specific book, although we've put them all together. It's actually Bible is a, a plural word. It means books. And so it's a collection, yeah. right? It's an ancient collection or library that's been put together. And I know that um, there, there are some some particularly Christians who want to talk about the Bible as if it's just this one you know, book that was just, you know, delivered to us as is by God. And it's like, that's not how it worked. You know, that's not how it came to be. It's a collection of different books and sacred texts. We've put them into one, but it's it's more of an anthology than it is a single uh, work from start to finish. Right. Yeah. B Biblion is the singular 
and that's Greek for book. Liber is the the Latin. Well, that's where we get library. Right. Yeah, so it is yeah. actually a library. We could call it a library. Uh, they just, you know, it's called by the Greek name, not by the Latin name. Yeah. Or it would have been a, a library. Well, you know, it sounds odd for us to call it a library because, you know, in our modern concept of library, we're talking about tens of thousands of books in a library, right? But like by ancient standards, um, you know, if you had three or four books, you had a library, right? <laughs> like, um, so, so it, it's a different concept. Yeah. You know, a, a good definition of a library, I think is any collection of books that is organized. Hmm. So it's a collection of books firstly, but I don't think that's enough. It has to be organized. There has to be some order to it for it to be good a library. Point. And so this is, this is something again, that we'll get into a little bit more of, of what this book, what this library is like. And so actually Rob Bell has a, another statement about it going into the content now, right? What is the Bible in terms of what's in it? So we talked a little bit about the genres of it and we'll go into more detail about that, but he calls it a library of books dealing with loss and anger and transcendence and worry and empire and money and fear and stress and joy and doubt and grace and healing. And who doesn't want to talk about those? Hmm. I mean, this stuff is relevant. This is all stuff that we deal with every day today, right? So I think, you know, we have to think about a little bit and talk a little bit about what revelation means. Because, again, it's we've talked about the, the relationship between sacred texts and the readers and the community of readers, the reader and, the, and, the, and his community. And now we have to think about what is actually in the texts. And so I have my own definition here, Ben. Tell me what you think. Okay. Revelation is an experience of the divine. So I haven't gotten to the sacred text yet. That's revelation, an experience of the divine. Sacred texts are translations of an experience of the divine into human language. And that's including the cultural that's inextricably linked with the language, right. or linked to the language. Right. So what do you think? Yeah, you know, the I think that's good. Uh, the, the, the words translation and interpretation are a little tricky, right? There's some overlapping and meaning there and knowing where to use one or the other can be hard. In this context, translation, I think, works, uh, especially with the Bible. Like we said earlier, Joseph Smith had a very expansive use of the word translation. But when we're talking about moving from one culture to another or one um, experience to another in order to communicate, then it totally makes sense that we would use the word translation. So I think that's good. Yeah, you know, I I did that on purpose. I was thinking of Joseph Smith and how he thinks about translation. Right. Right. And so I think it's a I think it's a valid way of thinking about it. You know, for for those of us who who seen whether you grew up with them or not, I'm, I converted from Lutheranism to Mormonism and now Latter-day Saintism. You know, you see these paintings where Joseph Smith looks like he's reading from the plates and you know, mm -hmm. you can picture him, they're not exactly like this, but picture him with his his finger we're keeping his place where he's reading yeah. uh, with his left hand over here. He's writing with his right hand as if he were reading. And and I do that. I translate. I actually translate, you know, uh, ancient Greek and, and medieval Latin and Arabic into English. And Sp I've translated Spanish and all these languages into English. I actually read the texts in the foreign language and I translate them this into English. But that's not what Joseph Smith is doing. Translation is a marvelous mental exercise. Like... It like is. it really stretches you like a lot of other things don't. Yeah. And so, but 
But there's also translation in the sense of I'm taking something from one culture to another culture. I'm adapting it from one culture to another. Or I'm taking my experience of the divine, which is ineffable, which means cannot be spoken. It can't be put into words. And I'm putting it into words because (laughs) what can I do? Yeah. If I want to, if I want to share it, I have to put it into words. Yeah. I mean, that came out, uh, particularly when we talked about DNC 76, right? So another thing about the Bible, Ben, is that it has genres it, there because it's a library. There are different kinds of writings in it, as mentioned, uh, in the subtitle to Rob Bell's book, what is the Bible? And so I wanted to go through a little bit of what, what the genres are and break those down a little bit. And so it's important to realize this because Knowing what the genre of the writing is tells us how to read it. I've got a quote here from Karen Armstrong from her book, The Lost Art of Scripture, which is another great book. Do you want to read that, Ben? Yeah. A work of art, be it a novel, a poem, or a scripture, must be read according to the laws of its genre. And like any artwork, scripture requires the disciplined cultivation of an appropriate mode of consciousness. We will see that when reading scripture, People would often sit, move, or breathe in a way that enabled them to incorporate it physically. Yeah, so there's a couple things going on here, right? One is the genre tells us how to read it. Another is, hey, if this is scripture, then there's actually a mode of reading it. And and this is especially true. You see, this idea of reading to yourself silently is a relatively new idea. Hmm. You know, scriptures were meant to be heard. And it's interesting because now we're going back to listening to them because now we drive in our cars and listen to the Mm. app, read the scripture to us. And yet that doesn't have the kind of mode of consciousness and the, the intonation that, that, you know, that you would have had in antiquity. I mean, there's these, these two things are definitely different experiences, right? Like, like go and read Alma chapter five and then go and listen to it. And it's, they're different experiences. Right. Yeah, and and then there's the idea of the the Mormon cadence. Oh the yes. Latter-day Saint oh cadence. yes. So that's not really what you know. You would rather have something that's more emotive, and I think the reason that the church doesn't put out something like that is that would be more interpretive. Right. right? And so that's that's something that happens. For example, when I read something or share something from memory on the Latter Day Contemplation podcast, it's going to be more emotive. Right. It's going to be not acted, but voice acted. How about that? Well, it's going to have your fingerprint so, on it a bit, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so the 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 so-called Mormon cadence that I mentioned, or the Latter-day Saint cadence, is more monotone, should I say? Something like that. So <laughs> yeah, it's not maybe. quite the same thing still, but at least we're listening again and not just reading silently to ourselves. Reading out loud is another, you know, another possibility for you yourself, right? We can each read out loud on our own, right. and that's that adds a layer of experience to it. So what are the genres in the Bible, Ben? So there's lots of of different, because we've got a collection of uh, books here, or not even just books, different texts, right? At the time, they weren't always always considered books, but these these come about in different ways. Um, Some of them are legal, so kind of have the the law genre to them. Um, Some of them are more historical. You know, this kind of comes out in, in Chronicles where... 
um, they really are are meant as more of a type of history or an ancient type of history, which we'll get into to that as well. Then we have things like uh, Solomon's wisdom, like these are short aphorisms or or you know statements of about about life and and human condition that can be read as as wisdom. The Psalms, those are prayers and hymns. We have uh, things like uh, Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and Daniel that are much more solidly in in prophecy in the prophecy realm, and then we have in, in those books. There's also mixed in um, various forms of uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic literature. So, um, yeah. and then there's there's eschatological stuff as well. Oh, one thing I I forgot to mention about some of the legal genres would be that. There, some of them are like treaties. If if listeners that have been listening to this for a while will remember, way way back when we started Doctrine and Covenants, the very first section we talked about, yeah, Shiloh and I, we talked about how uh, Doctrine and Covenants section one actually had the format of a of an ancient treaty that came about, you know, through through the years, and but then was brought into a religious context. You know, started in a legal context, but then was brought into a religious context, and how DNC uh, Section One is actually formatted in that way. Very fascinating because this genre wasn't discovered until like around 1950 or so. They didn't identify this as a genre within scripture, and so what I think is interesting is is as more and more scholarly work is done on stuff, they they are discovering genres and subgenres that bring out these concepts of oh we're going to get to it here in a bit the documentary hypothesis with with different types of authorship and 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 you can identify that by by sometimes the use of different genres so yeah that's a good point yeah so these this kind of suzerain vassal treaty you're talking about also shows up in the book of mormon with king benjamin right yes. and at mount sinai when israel uh makes that covenant, that treaty with God. Right. And so we'll, we'll be revisiting this. And by the way, everything in this episode we'll be revisiting, right? <laughs> we we just sort of wanted to lay out, again, where we're coming from and where we're going with this. And all of these things are going to show up. And so we want to give an introduction to these ideas. So there's one other thing, and that is that some of the Bible is written in prose and some of it's written in poetry. Right. As a matter of fact, right. it's about 43% of the Bible that's in prose and 33% in poetry, including songs and reflective poetry, passionate, political, resistant poetry from the prophets. So there's a difference between prose and poetry, right? Yeah. Prose is propositional. It, it speaks to the intellect, right? It says something to you. This is a proposition I'm making to your intellect. Whereas poetry speaks directly to the heart. And so one of the things that, that shows up here in this conversation is that if we're reading what was written in poetry in prose, we're missing a big part of the, of the message. Right. And so I have my own experience. If we go into what are the poetic books, I want to talk about Job. I'll, I'll let you go through what the poetic books are in the Bible. Let's identify those. Yeah. I mean, you, your point about poetry really comes up in translation. Again, we're going to get to that yeah. here in just a bit, because if things are not translated to maintain that genre, right, then you're losing, like you said, you're losing the intent and meaning of it. Um, even if you get, even if you translate 
what it means linguistically, you're losing the emotional element of what's yeah. being given. So the book of Job is very poetic in the way that it's structured. Um, Psalms, obviously, Proverbs, obviously, and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that's that's all very – and then there's a couple of apocryphal books that are poetic. We've got the Book of Wisdom and the Book of Sirach. How do you pronounce that? Sirach? Sirach. Sirach. I mean, that's, I my, that's Sirach. my guess, yeah. So. so, yeah, so I have a personal experience as an example, and we'll definitely come back to that translation point, Ben. That's a really good point. You know, the, I, I had an experience of reading the first English translation of Job in verse, and that was made by Stephen Mitchell. Stephen Mitchell is a great translator of, let's see, Homer, the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, some, some of the New Testament, some of the Psalms and Job, and maybe even some other things that I'm, I'm forgetting. I've read almost everything he's translated, and it's, it's really good stuff. And I read it first to myself, and that in and of itself was an experience above and beyond any I had ever had reading Job in, in any kind of prose translation. But then I wanted to share it with my wife. And see, poetry has to be read out loud. Mm-hmm. When I read it out loud, that was yet another level of experience. <laughs> it was incredible. And so again, well, as we go through the the year, whenever there is poetry, we'll have to bring up, well, actually, why not mention now, there is a new translation from Robert Alter of the Jewish Bible, where all of the poetry has been translated as poetry. So the second ever translation of Job into verse is by Robert Alter, and he's (laughs) done all of the other works too. So that's a good one to go to for that. And so maybe, maybe we'll have to bring some, bring in some of that, Ben, as we go through the, the year. So I guess the next thing I want to talk about, Ben, is is the authorship. You know, who wrote this stuff? Mm. There's a difference even between who wrote this stuff and who compiled it. because, And that's a distinction that we're making, you know, that the scholars have given us. I've got a great quote here from Rob Bell, again, from What is the Bible on, on who wrote this stuff. And it actually covers both. Do you want to read that, Ben? Yeah. So he says, it's important to point out that these writers... And the people who decided whether or not to include their writings in the Bible were real people living in real places at real times. Their purposes in writing then were shaped by their times and places and contexts and psyches and personal histories and economies and politics and religion and technology and countless other factors. I mean, I would say, you know, in other words, there is much more behind the scenes context going on that we can't just pull out of the text itself. We have to get into a mindset or an understanding of the context that isn't always obvious or available to us from the text itself. And that's why we're choosing to read religiously and critically. It's the critical reading that's going to give us that context. And that's important. And of course, the religious is too, because even if the texts aren't historical, there's something called sacred history that I've mentioned, and we'll we'll probably revisit again too. So I love Rob Bell's uh, style. His his rhetoric is just great. You did a great job reading that quote. It's it's not easy because he lists all these things and he uses no commas. And he really means <laughs> for you to run out of breath. <laughs> yeah, he means for you to run out of breath because he's saying, look, there's all this stuff going on here, right? Yeah. It's so much, it, there's more than meets the eye, right? 
So then thinking about how this comes together. So first of all, we've already mentioned that there are different authors, and then there are the people who decided to put these writings together into one book that, or went to into one library that we call the Bible. So the text as they were written, and I'm not going to go into a whole list of the chronological order. I'll, I will say that the oldest is Job. It's probably Job. So these are written over a period of over a thousand years from the time that, that, you know, the earliest book is written until the time that the last book is written, it's over a thousand years. And then it looks like they come together as one library after the period of the Babylonian exile. Hmm. And this is all brought together. And it's interesting to note, again, from a critical standpoint, that the Old Testament actually contains two very different accounts of the ancient Israelites, which are irreconcilable. Hmm. So what do we do with that? Again, moving forward, we'll have that in mind. Yeah, we'll, we'll take that. the religious approach. We'll take the critical approach. We'll have both end. We'll have our cake and eat it too. How about that? Then? <laughs> so how then do these become a canon? And what is a canon? What's a canon, Ben? Boom. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. what I was thinking. So, <laughs> that's not the canon we're talking about, right? So canon would be taking a, a sacred text, the process by which a a sacred text is brought in and given a given authoritative status, right? Yeah. So, so canon, you know, here we go. Here's a definition: an authoritative list of books accepted as holy scripture, or the authentic works of a writer, you know, like Chaucer canon. So, but but anyway, in our context, we're talking about something that has been given authoritative status. Um, as as a text, as a holy text. Yeah, in addition to the scriptures and, and Chaucer as an example, we can also even say the Western canon, and that would be all sure. of the, the great books of the Western world, starting with the Bible and going, you know, then from Homer down through Freud, as uh, Britannica published in the, the set that Mortimer Adler put together out of Chicago, uh, University of Chicago. So do we have a canon as Latter-day Saints? So at Latter-day Saint Canon, basically, if you go down to Deseret Book and you buy your quad, right, we kind of have this de facto, whatever's in in that is canon. And if it's not in there, then there's there's probably, it's up for debate as to whether it's canon or not. Um, and, right. and that's why um, the status of, say, for instance, the Family Proclamation is kind of um, sometimes discussed among people right now. Oh wait, is this is this canon? Is this scripture? Is it not? Well, it's kind of pseudo there right now, right? It's it, maybe maybe it's in a transitional period. I'm not sure, but I don't th I don't believe that if you go down to Deseret Book and you buy a quad that it's got the Family Proclamation in it, right? But it's got a lot of other things that you know maybe even a hundred years ago wouldn't have been considered canon. And it's missing a lot of other things that 150 years ago might have still been considered canon, like lectures on faith, right? And so yeah. the, the process by which something is is canonized or decanonized um, is very fascinating, a long discussion that, that we probably won't ever get into, but there's books on it and people that are researching it. And especially within the Latter-day Saint tradition, it, it's very interesting. So again, to define what LDS canon is, anything that you buy down at the, the bookstore that uh, – is is printed by the church as scripture, so to speak, right? Anything that's included in the Bible, included in the Book of Mormon, included 
in the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrine and Covenants, I think that's safe to say that's our official canon. We do talk about things like conference talks and and this and that, but I think we, if we're really comparing apples to apples here, like to other to other religious canons, we probably couldn't include those as as canonized in the same way. I think of the standard works as, right. as our canon. So it's interesting you brought up the process of canonization again, and also you mentioned decanonization because again, the people who, there were people who decided that this is canon and this is not. Right. And so there's such a thing as apocrypha, and we'll have to define that, right? Apocrypha are these these writings that are considered of dubious authenticity, right? So we don't know that these are actually uh, what they pretend to be. And it's interesting because later on through biblical scholarship, you know, modern biblical scholarship, we find out that maybe parts of what we considered canon in the past may be apocryphal. Yeah. And we also find that... Uh, that again, you've mentioned that in some traditions the apocrypha are part of the canon, and in our tradition they're not. And so we'll have to go into that too. And I love the the quote that you brought up from from Joseph Smith. From well, that's this is supposed to be from through Revel, revelation through Joseph Smith, right? It's not Joseph Smith saying this; it's the Lord saying that there are many things contained therein that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. There are many things contained therein that, therein that are not true which are interpolations by the hands of men. Right. Verily I say unto you that it is not needful that the Apocrypha should be translated. So this was obviously a question for, for Joseph Smith, and it could be because the Apocrypha were removed from the King James Version when he was a boy. This yeah. is something that happened. So the Apocrypha were originally translated with the King James Version in 1611, and around 1629, some editions of it start to appear without the Apocrypha. Uh And then around the early uh, part of the 19th century, uh, sometime after 1816, when the American Bible Society is founded, then you start to see British and foreign Bibles without the Apocrypha from then on out. And so when, when Joseph Smith is a boy, this is happening. And so by the time he's translating, he has this question, what about the Apocrypha? Is it in or is it out? And so what do you say? Uh, Therefore, whoso readeth it, let him understand for the Spirit manifesteth, manifesteth truth. And whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. And whoso receiveth not by the Spirit cannot be benefited. Therefore, it is not needful that it should be translated. That's interesting because it sounds like you need not only the Spirit, but the original languages. Maybe it's maybe it's implied here that you can read whatever translations are already available. Oh, that's right, because there is KJV, right? There's King James Version Apocrypha. It's out there, especially at his time. It's it's in the process of becoming unavailable in the modern, you know, in the in the contemporary editions, but it has been available until around 1816. So I would say that my understanding is a large part of that move, especially in the United States to remove the Apocrypha was um, kind of an anti-Catholic move because a lot of these were seen as uh, Catholic books that, that were part of the Catholic canon, but but weren't weren't as much part of the Protestant thing. And so a move to, to do away with those was kind of a, a way of saying, you know, Catholicism doesn't mix with American culture, right? So there was a little bit of a snub to Catholicism there. But um, there, I'm sure there's other reasons going on there. What's interesting here about this quote from Doctrine and Covenants section 91 is the word translated. Because it, when you were talking about it, Chris, you actually ended up using the word translated 
in the two different ways. And because um, the fact is that these things were already translated into English. What Joseph Smith was doing wasn't translating them into English. He was going through them and doing the Joseph Smith translation, right? Which was pulling out additional meaning and explanation and fitting it into the broader restoration uh, context. And that's what he meant by by translation in that in that sense. So to say that they don't need to be translated um, again in section ninety one, it's not talking about they don't need to be translated to English. It's talking about Joseph Smith doesn't need to go through and give some additional uh, expounding of them because if somebody wants to go to them with the spirit and read them, they can do that by themselves, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just have a couple more comments about it. So I, you, you heard me actually realize that as I was reading, right? Yeah. That's one thing. <laughs> I also want to go back to your comment, Ben. Yeah. I want to go back to your comment that this idea of reading by the spirit, whatever translation is a great idea. It's a right. great idea that we can apply to not only to the Apocrypha, but to the Pseudepigrapha, to writings, sacred texts from other traditions. Again, one of my personal favorites is the Bhagavad Gita. I love the Quran too, and I get so much from reading those, and I find truth uh, truth with them. As a matter of fact, in as we go into, I'll probably mention this again when we get to it. When we get to the Genesis account of the Garden myth, right the the Garden of Eden, there is in the Quran there's a telling there's a, a particular detail that doesn't appear anywhere in our standard works, but is taught in our temple. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that was really interesting that that showed up there. It's not in the standard works. It is taught in the temple and it's in the Quran. Yeah. So then there's one more category, Ben, which is pseudepigrapha. And what that means is something that is not written by who it's said to have been written by. Right. And so when we said apocrypha is of dubious authorship, that means we're not really sure. Pseudepigrapha is, oh, we figured out that this isn't really by who it says it's by. And yet some of those pseudepigraphal writings become important to us and are part of our tradition. As a matter of fact, backing up a, a bit to the, to the Apocrypha again, Joseph Smith had the Apocrypha presumably in his Bible when he was a boy, the, the Bible that he's reading from before his prophetic calling. And so he's familiar with some of those writings. And this idea of reading them and reading them by the Spirit is something that's very much a part of our tradition. And as a matter of fact, there are certain books that go in and out of style when it comes to reading them. And so right now, I, I know just from having my pulse on, you know, just talking to people uh, out there and you know, interacting with people, especially through the podcast and the Come Follow Me study group and, and even family members, is that people are reading the, the book of Enoch again, the, uh-huh. the so-called book of Enoch, which isn't even a book. It's books of Enoch, right? Right. And so that's one example. And I think if we look at some of those apocryphal writings, we'll find things that are very familiar to our tradition in them so that we can see. Oh, if somebody wants to dive into that, they should. They can look into – Hugh Nibley did a series of articles, um, Strange Thing in the Land that were published back in the 70s that he talks about the apocryphal book of Enoch and then compares it to uh, what we have in the book of Moses, which is, is you know, the Latter-day Saint book of Enoch. And yeah, that's fascinating, a fascinating yeah. discussion there. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the process of canonization, it has all these pieces to it, right? What is canon? What is apocryphal? What is pseudepigraphal? And it has decisions that were made at different times 
and in different places and for different reasons. And we see in our own canon that things have been canonized that weren't originally in the canon. They've been added. We see things that have been decanonized that have been taken away. The Doctrine and Covenants means, well, what does it mean, Ben? Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine portion was originally intended to be the lectures on faith. So yeah, that was that was taken out. You know, think in our tradition, think what Mormon ended up having to do, right? By compiling all the different books of the Book of Mormon. And he he constantly talks about all the stuff that he, you know, has to leave out, right? That's and so he he was in a privileged position to kind of make this decision. But uh, the Bible, as it gets to us, we had many quote unquote Mormons along the way, right? That made decisions about what to include and not to include, about who to paraphrase and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So it it comes to us um, in, in that way. And, and I think if we look at how Mormon compiled and, and did it, then that kind of gives us a, a little bit of an idea. Yeah. So Ben, now we've been talking about translation a little bit here and there all along. Now let's really go into that. Okay. The first thing I want to say is, as a professional translator, I think even among among professional translators, even those who don't know Italian know this Italian expression, traduttore, traditore. What does that mean, Ben? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're an Italian speaker. What so, is that? Translator, trader, right? <laughs> so traduttore, translator, traditore, trader. There's only one vowel of difference. Yeah. In other words, if when you translate something, it's not going to be true to the original intended meaning like there's really almost no in every way, way yeah in every way you're going to get it wrong you're going to lose something we have this expression lost in translation right you're going to lose something right yeah you're going to betray traditore right you're going to betray the original intent and meaning and there's a lot of reasons for that or maybe one or the other yeah right? yeah maybe not necessarily both it could be either or or both sure right yeah. right sure yeah. And and sometimes the in the process of translating you have to make a decision about which yes. one you want to lean towards, right? That's right. And maybe not just sometimes, maybe like kind of all the time you have to make that kind of a decision. And you know, your intentions as a translator are going to going to inform which direction you're going to go with that. So, yeah, so there's in translation theory there there's sort of two ways you can go here, right? One is functional equivalence and one is dynamic equivalence. Can you explain those, Ben? Functional equivalence and dynamic equivalence? Yeah, so a, a functional equivalence would be analyzing a text kind of at the word level. Okay, so so looking, I want to I want to match the meaning of this word to whatever other word in, in the new language is going to fit it at the closest. And there's some advantages to that um, because you you can preserve some some interesting nuance, but the the main disadvantage to to doing it that way is that human beings don't think in words, like they think in thoughts, they think in concepts, they think in ideas. And so, while one language may present a thought or, or a concept within one word, in another language, it takes an entire sentence to describe that concept or thought or word. So. The other way to go about it would be like dynamic equivalence, thought for thought. And so this would be where you're you're really getting the whole context of what is being conveyed here. And then you have to kind of retell that in the other language. 
the disadvantage here is that it takes a much broader understanding, not just of the language, but of the culture and context of, of which it was presented in order to do that. And so it can be a much more difficult task to accomplish, much more time consuming, sometimes can end up meaning that the the language you're translating into the text ends up being way longer than than the original one because you're trying to bring in all of that thought meaning and so it's not all around necessarily better than functional equivalence but it definitely has some significant advantages that uh, need to be considered so yeah i'm going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages in a little bit in a little different way i'm going to take a little bit different approach i'm going to use the example of poetry that came up earlier yeah so if I'm taking a word-for-word word approach, the disadvantage is I have to give up the verse. I yeah. can't actually write poetry if I'm going word-for-word. Word. Right, right. And so if I go, if I want to preserve the experience of what it's like to read the original, but in another language. So for example, the, the Quran is all in, it's not poetry, but it's poetical. Yeah. And so it's all rhymed and that's why. There's a cadence to it. Yeah. So I prefer to read a translation that brings that's a, that has dynamic equivalence that brings that experience of reading poetry into the English, and that's why I recommend Thomas Cleary's translation because it's the best at doing that. But see, when you say it's the best, I didn't say it's the best translation. I said it's the best at doing that at that particular intention, right? Right. So if someone asks me what's the best translation of something, well, that depends on what you're looking for, right? Yeah. Are you looking for this functional equivalence or dynamic equivalence? So if you want to go word for word, right. that's maybe not the best translation, right? And so if I want to have an experience of poetry, I need a dynamic equivalence translation. So that's just one other way of looking at it in terms of poetry yeah yeah i mean they're going to yeah and you know backing up you know this idea of having to choose a word even if you go word for word that's problematic i've read cicero where he's just such a great rhetor and he's using words that in latin i'm talking about reading cicero in the original latin he uses words that in latin have multiple meanings and he's doing it on purpose and so if i'm going to translate that as a translator i have to either i have to pick one meaning and at best, if I want to include the other ones, I have to use a footnote. Yeah. That's the only way I can do it because I can't, there's no one word in English that has all those different meanings, just like the Latin does. And so that's another example of how this works. So hopefully that gives gives you a little bit of an idea of what goes into translation without going too deeply uh, into the subject, just a little bit of an idea of that. And then I want to talk about some things, Ben, that are specifically sort of categories of things that might be lost in translation. And so I have here at the top of my list a couple of things uh, that, I, that I'll go into. And then I'll, I know you want to talk about sort of spheres of meaning. Yeah. So when I think of the things that are lost in translation, some of the things that come to my mind are names, whether they're names of people or whether they're toponyms, right? Names of places. And you see this in ancient literature, not just in the Bible, but you can compare Oedipus Rex. For those who know Oedipus Rex, or for those who don't know Oedipus Rex, the play by Sophocles, without hopefully having any spoilers, um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I need a spoiler <laughs> alert. You have this character, the central character, Oedipus, that as you read it in English, doesn't seem to know what's happening to him. I'll just be vague like that. So he doesn't seem to know what's happening to him. It turns out that in the Greek... That's not the way it is. In the Greek, not necessarily so, okay? So in the Greek, it's ambiguous. The Greek is ambiguous in a way that 
you're not really sure whether he knows what's going on or mm. not. Mm. And so there's sort of a canonical interpretation of Oedipus Rex that he doesn't know what's going on. And therefore, that canonical interpretation is baked into all the English translations. Yeah. So you wouldn't see this unless you read a treatment of it in English, which is what I did, or you read the Greek. Yeah. Which which I would take me a long time with the dictionary to do that. <laughs> Ancient Greek is, you know, I thought Arabic was hard until I studied ancient Greek. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can see one of the the reasons that that would be it would be problematic would be because if the original intention was that it was ambiguous, what you're doing is you're engaging the reader in that process. The reader has to make a decision about what it means to them and what comes out to them. And right. and if you if you instead read a translation that makes the assumption, then that choice has already been taken away from the reader, right? And they're not as engaged in this this ambiguity of the story. So, and I just realized that I was talking about names and places and went into ambiguity. So I've got to go back <laughs> to names and places. But before I go back to names and places, well, let me just go into names and places. So, you have um, in Oedipus Rex, you have characters like the shepherd, and in your English translation. Just like in the Greek, he's the shepherd. But then you have other characters like Creon, who, who is named. Well, it looks like that in English, but it turns out he's not named. It turns out Creon is just a transliteration of the Greek for king. Huh. And so we see something just like this in the Bible. You have Hamelech, this character in the Bible, Hamelech. Well, Hamelech is just Hamelech. This is the king. And uh, what's another example, Ben? Um, you're putting me on the spot. I mean, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? So Melchizedek just means like righteous king, right? Yeah, my king, the righteous one, right? Yeah, Something yeah. like that. And so, uh, you know, we, we take it, we, we use it as a name, but it's really a title. Right. And, and this is all over in scripture. And in fact, a lot of Book of Mormon scholarship is focusing on this concept now and discovering that um, as they kind of piece out a little bit of of the way that names are structured within the the Nephite language, that there, it's possible that a lot of the names that we have in the Book of Mormon are actually titles instead, which, I mean, that's originally what names were, right? You know, I mean, even Adam is a title. It just means man. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, with, with Adam, because oftentimes we can't, that's one of the things that gets lost in translation. You actually can do something like the Hebrew so bara Elohim Adam min ha Adama. Those of you who know Hebrew, forgive my pronunciation. I sound like a, a Yemeni Jew. <laughs> I, I have this Arabic sounding Hebrew. So bara Elohim Adam, there's Adam, min ha Adama. Ha Adama means the earth, right? So the soil. Yeah. So there's a way that we can actually translate that in the English so that we preserve that kind of Adam ad, ha Adama. Adam ha Adama. So we can say God created human from humus, which is not the same thing as homos. We're not talking about the stuff you put on your pita chips. We're talking about living soil. Yeah. God created human. Adam just means human from humus, yeah. living soil. Yeah. So, it, yeah, that that um, alliteration there, you know, and and parallels of the of the syllables does kind of bring out that from the dust of the earth, so to speak. Right. So yeah, I remember going to the temple once, Adam. Uh, now you're Adam, Bill, Adam, Ben. <laughs> They're <laughs> well, just you titles. Are a human. You are a man, right? <laughs> so I actually want to go to Eve now. So I went to the temple and I decided to listen in Arabic. 
because just like because by the way you can do this with the scriptures we said this you can read different translations did we say that i think we said that you can read different translations knowing that none of them is the original but you can sort of maybe start to triangulate and find the meaning right triangulation right Yeah. yeah i like that so i went to the temple i listened in arabic and i got something about eve's name and it was this it had the form of a huge revelation, but without the substance thereof, because really what I got was that just like Adam means man, uh, that, that Eve just meant woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why are you calling her Eve? Well, because, because she's, she's the mother of all living. That's, that's right, what yeah. it, that's the name. That's what it literally means. Yeah. That's what it means. Something like that. Yeah. So maybe not woman, but this, it's what she is, right? Not, not this personal name. So then there's these, this idea of spheres of meaning and you, you talk and Venn diagrams. You were telling me about this pre-show. What, what yeah. do you mean by that? I didn't actually get it. I'm, I was waiting for this moment for you to explain <laughs> it to me. <laughs> so um, I don't know where I got this concept from. I don't, I don't, I want to say I didn't, I, there's no such thing as an original idea, right? So um, I, somebody brought this up and it's always stuck in my mind because it really has helped me understand translation and, and language and stuff. So if any given word within a language has, a, in a two-dimensional sense, you might say a, a circle of meaning, but I, I want to take it to the three-dimensional sphere because I think it sort of brings out the concept that the language is more complex than two-dimensional. So I'm going to say spheres of meaning rather than circles of meaning. So if you think about a three-dimensional Venn diagram here, every word Whoa. has a, a a sphere of meaning, a, a space in which it occupies meaning in the human consciousness, right? And every even even between people, there's going to be of the same native language, there might be slight variations, offsets in the meanings of those words, right? Um, but but for the most part, there the the meanings of words are going to to map pretty well between native and contemporary speakers of any given language, um, right? Uh, like I said, there's going to be slight offsets here and there, and that's why people argue over definitions of words. But <laughs> for the most part, but the the minute that you say I'm going to take this word. And this is going back to the word-for-word equivalence, right? Not even thought-for-thought, which is a a more complex, maybe (laughs) four-dimensional concept. But uh, the minute that you take, you you say, I want to translate this word into another language, there's whatever word you go to almost always is going to occupy a sphere of meaning that is somewhat even more offset than the word that you have in your native language. There may be occasional words that are that are very one for one, like let's take the word book. You know, that's a pretty straightforward word in English that let's say Italian, you would say libro, right? Those are those words occupy very close spheres of meaning. But even with a word that that's that's that common, there is a lot of there's cultural baggage to each one that's going to offset its meaning. And when you get into to more and more ambiguous and complex concepts and words, not something that's just naming a an object, right? But abstract meaning, when you start moving into the abstract with vocabulary, these spheres of meaning are even more offset 
because no longer we're talking about like a material object. We're again, we're talking about a concept or an idea that has evolved within the collective consciousness of that culture. And so the culture is, has going to have imbibed that that word with a meaning that when you say, okay, I want to I want to translate this word into this language, what word do I use? And it may overlap with various different words. Its meaning may overlap, but it's never going to be exact, right? There's going to be offsets. So the minute that you move from the the translating of one word into another language, you are co-opting an entirely new sphere, volume, or space of meaning that didn't exist in the original language. And you're leaving behind a whole space of meaning in the original language that doesn't exist, or maybe it doesn't exist, but doesn't exist within the sphere of meaning of the word that you choose in the target language. So thinking of Venn diagrams, there's a sense in which we actually have already covered this somewhat, right? Sure. That we've been we've been hinting at this. Yeah, I, this is more of an ideas. analogy to help you kind of visualize the, the difficulty here. That you're not it's just abstract. Yeah, yeah. You're not just you know you're not just leaving behind some meaning, but you're also co-opting meaning. And and so you when you're using a new word in a language to to translate to, you get a, a native speaker of that language that reads that word. And it may have a lot of cultural baggage to it and, and meaning that was not intended in, in the original. And so you can get some drift, some meaning drift in, in translation. And so it's it's something to just be aware of. That's why it's, it's – you, you talked before about the value of reading multiple translations because what you're going to do is you're going to – different translators – are going to have chosen maybe different words or different ways of explaining that idea. And so you're going to get multiple spheres of meaning that sort of surround the original one. And and I like that word to use, tr- help you triangulate a meaning more as to what it's really trying to put its finger on, right? Right, which is somewhere in between the words. You know, another thing listeners can do is go to and do word studies. You don't have to learn the Greek and the Hebrew of the, right. the Old Testament right. to to be able to to do this because you can just use something like Strong's Concordance, which you can access online, and you can find out whatever the word was used in the translation. You can click through to the the Strong's entry and see a, a dictionary entry and see what are what other lexical range that word has in, in translation, all these other choices that were left out that, that aren't the choices that were made by the translator. Yeah. You can see those. Yeah. So that's that's helpful too. So Ben, let's go through some manuscripts and translations, hitting just highlights. I have a list. I, I made a a document called Sacred Textbook Club. I shared with you, and, and I've shared it with others. And that's something I have in mind to to be able to go through and and read some of the sacred texts of the of the world of other of other faith traditions. And in that, I actually included, of course, our own sacred texts, and I listed all the you know. The, the, the which manuscripts were translated into what versions and which came first and which came <laughs> second and which came later. And I just, I, we can't go through all of that, but let's just hit some highlights, right? So there's just a few things I want to point out here. There is, there are a couple, a couple of versions that are, they're important in antiquity. And then there's a couple of versions that are important in, in modernity. And so let's go through this a little bit. So first of all, there's the Septuagint, the oldest 
version of the Old Testament that we have that comes down to us, what's what we call extant, is the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a translation of what were originally Hebrew texts into Greek. Mm-hmm. And that was done presumably for the Jewish community in Egypt under Greek. Yeah, in Alexandria. When, when Greek was the common language, right, in Alexandria. Yeah. And so let's let that, let, let's repeat that. The oldest text of the Bible that we have, even though the original is Hebrew, is a translation into Greek. Hmm. The next, the second oldest, is one that most people haven't heard of. You may have heard of the Septuagint. You probably haven't heard of the Peshitta. Most people haven't heard of it. The Peshitta is the Syriac version of the Bible. And this is the, the, the Bible that's used in the Eastern tra- Christian traditions. And one of the things about that that's interesting about the Syriac Bible is that whether it was, it's thought to be a translation from the Greek. Some say it's the other way around, but most scholars say it's a translation from the Greek. So the Peshitta, though, it's in Syriac. And Syriac is a sister language to Arabic. So there's this book called A Deadly Misunderstanding, where the author goes into, when it comes to looking at something like the Quran, and comparing it with the Bible, they look so different in translation. But that's if you go with King James Bible. If you go with Peshitta, then the terms start to look a lot more alike. And so as we, as I'm, I'm most likely going to bring up the Quran a lot, Ben. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I study the Quran. And so the, I think that having the access to the Peshitta and maybe I'll be able to quote from an English translation of the Peshitta. So you can actually read an English translation of the Peshitta. And we've probably got to put together some show notes so we can include links to some of these books, right? Then we have the Masoretic text. So now we get the most ancient Hebrew text. This most ancient Hebrew text, though, is third in antiquity to the the Septuagint and the Peshitta. But it's an incredible work that the, that the Masoretes did. They took and they took and put together all of the Hebrew manuscripts that they had, and this is done much later. So the Septuagint goes back to what three hundred BCE. That sounds about right. Yeah, Hellenistic. Yeah, Hellenistic Egypt. So and then you have yeah, so third century to second century, between third and second century. Okay, yeah. BCE, and then the Peshitta goes back to the first and second centuries of the Common Era. So the Masoretic text comes from around the sixth century of the common era. So it's, it's even later, you know, first, second century, we get the Peshitta sixth century, we get the Masoretic text. But when these, when these Masoretes put this text together, they counted all the words and all the syllables and they paid and they paid attention. They, they made note of, not just paid attention. They made note of what word was in the middle, what syllable was in the middle so that they could detect emendations so that they could know if somebody made a change to the text. Hmm. It's almost like an early form of, of file hashing. I mean, I don't know who anybody is into uh, <laughs> technology I don't know stuff, what that but means. It, it's it, it's how you it's how you detect changes to files, electronic changes to files. Oh, so, okay, same idea. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, uh, you know, so Christopher, what um, uh, I'm not sure if, again how deep you want to go into this, but this Masoretic text. I mean, what were they using as their source? Were they using older manuscripts and and transcribing it? They were using the best Hebrew manuscripts they could get their hands on. And 
whatever oral tradition they had. Oral tradition, okay. And and is this Masoretic text, is it is it voweled? There were different ways of voweling the text. And so okay. one was chosen from among them. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then fast forwarding through to the up to the Middle Ages, you have Jerome who all the Latin translations that there were had been made from the Greek. He wanted to make a translation from the Hebrew. He wanted to go back to the Hebrew. And so he went with what he had, and he actually didn't have all of it in Hebrew. So he did he back translated some of it, as I recall, from from Greek. And then he gives us this Latin translation that's the Vulgate that becomes really important. And and so we get we go into a period of time where we're going to end up in the Reformation. And the Reformation means we're going to we can say this is the beginning of of sort of this what becomes modern biblical scholarship, right? Mm, yeah. Because you're going to get, we're going to translate it so that we can read it, so that we can have our own understanding of it, not just the one that the church gives us, right? And so that starts to happen. And again, I'm just going to, I'm going to skip over a lot, Ben. So I just want to go into the KJV now, the King James Version, the, yeah. the version that we read as Latter-day Saints. That translation is a really good translation, and it's beautiful in its language, and it's and it's one of the books of America, right? If, if, a, if a nation has sure. a book, the King James Bible is one, the Constitution is another. Yeah. You can understand the Constitution in this context as a book. This is the American canon, if you will, yeah. right? The King James Bible and the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, those are canon in America. So the King James Bible is made from the Textus Receptus. It's a great translation of the Textus Receptus. The problem is is that the Textus Receptus isn't a good text. As a matter of fact, in the late 1800s, Frederick Scrivener said, actually this isn't a quote, but he says that there's no book he had ever seen with as many errors as the first edition of Erasmus's Greek New, Te New Testament. So the Textus Receptus is a, is a text that Erasmus put together. And actually, now that I say that, uh, what I said about Jerome back-translating is actually Erasmus. To put together this Greek text, he back-translated Mm. something into greek from mm. latin yeah because he actually didn't have it all so jerome really did make his translation from hebrew erasmus was the one who did that so all the scholars that that worked on the king james bible did a really good job it's just that the sources they had weren't that great right so we have much better manuscripts today and this is why if you're studying the bible we recommend that you read another translation for studying. Now for devotional reading, for reading in, uh, in liturgical settings at church, King James, for memorizing. If I'm memorizing something from the Bible and I'm not memorizing it in, the, in, in, in Greek or Hebrew or something, it's going to be in, if I'm memorizing it in translation, it's going to be in the King James Bible. And it's because of the language. Yeah. And the King James Version. It's because of the language. It's beautiful. Well, it it's really the, is. so that's, this is Joseph Smith's religious language, right? Because this is the Bible that he read. There's that And too. so this is why, this is why the Book of Mormon is in King James English, you know, that the Doctrine and Covenants for, you know, a, large, a lot of it is, is also in that way. So this is yeah. Joseph Smith's religious language. So that's why the King James uh, version of the Bible becomes important to Latter-day Saints. But I think it, it's it's really important for us to not be too stuck on that because I think we're going to miss a, miss out on a lot of meaning that we could be getting from a better translation of the Bible, which Joseph Smith himself said we needed 
right? right. That, that what we had wasn't all that great, he himself said. And so we do have better translations of the Bible available to us now. And I think that we, we really need to, you know, be open to that and accept that because we're, we're going to be able to get more out of it. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, Ben, and, and you answer a question that, that may have been on the listener's mind, which is, well, why read the King James Bible then? And so, and, and why, why have we and why do we continue to? And so you've answered that question beautifully. And so, by the way, we talked earlier about functional and dynamic equivalency. The King James Bible really falls toward the word-for-word end. It's not mm-hmm. extreme, mm-hmm. but it is more on the word-to-word end. And the translation that I would recommend for English readers, that is, according to scholarly consensus, the best English translation is the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. Now, what I mean by scholarly consensus is not that every last scholar agrees. It means that there is a consensus among a large number of scholars that this is the best translation. But I recommend it with this caveat. The caveat is that the assumptions of the ancient interpreters that we've mentioned but haven't gone into yet and we'll go into are baked into all of the English translations, including the NRSV. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something we want to be aware of. We want to be aware of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, to that point that the King James Version is – is a 400-year-old translation, right? And so English uh, language and culture has changed quite a bit since. So the NRSV it can take a lot of that into account, and so it, it can be really helpful Plus to the us. better manuscripts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's made from better manuscripts too. You know, I want to insert one more thing here, Ben. Um, this is something that – and this is opinion, but I've seen, I've seen what it's done – Again, this is anecdotal now, but I've seen what it's done in my family. We raised, my wife and I raised nine kids. There were, uh, we have a blended family. I think I said this earlier, uh, we have nine kids, but they're not all, there's hers, mine, and ours, right? Mm -hmm. So three of hers, one of mine, five of ours. And we did a lot of this reading from the scripture stories, right? So thinking about kids, you read from scripture stories, Book of Mormon stories. I guess there's Old Testament stories too. And you do this because, well our kids aren't quite ready for King James English yet. That's not like the English that we use when we speak at home, right? Right. We came to realize by the time our youngest kid came up that if they're not ready for King James English, they're not going to get ready for King James English by reading scripture stories. Yeah. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So so we actually stopped doing that. Now, there is the argument of they're getting the sense of the story, but we can tell that in our own words. Right. So you can say scripture stories are something like reading uh, the Lamb's simplification of Shakespeare. So just so you get the storyline and then take that and go into the actual scriptures. So so we did do both when we were reading scripture stories. It's like if you go see an opera, you really need to have read and studied the story beforehand because you're not going to get it from the opera. The opera is a different experience than understanding the story. Yeah. (laughs) So you do have to have a way to communicate the story to your kids, but you can do that in your own words. Right. And spend more time reading from the King James Bible that you want them to learn. Yeah. That's just my... That's No, that's a good point. Unsolicited advice on, <laughs> on how to read scriptures. With your this kids. is all unsolicited advice, Christopher. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's true. This is true. So there's just one last translation that I want to cover, uh, having left out a lot of other you know, manuscripts and translations, and that's the Joseph Smith translation. Right. You've sort of talked about it a little bit. The thing about the Joseph Smith translation is, 
he doesn't mean by translation, I'm reading the Greek or the Hebrew or both and giving you a new translation. Right. He means I'm going to go through and with the spirit, and yet it has been recently brought about or discovered or, you know, something that scholars have written about in, in our own tradition, you know, coming out of BYU, that it looks like a lot of what Joseph Smith does is he takes from Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible uh-huh. by Adam Clark which is a contemporary uh, Bible commentary for him. And he inserts those interpretations of the scriptures into what he calls a translation, which we call the Joseph Smith translation. So that's it. Do you have anything else to say about the Joseph Smith translation? No. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be using that. And and, I, and we'll actually be looking at other commentaries too. I personally read commentary when I prepare to podcast on the scriptures or teach on the scriptures or lead a discussion group on the scriptures. And I read from very conservative Bible commentaries. So I'll mention a couple of those in case listeners are interested in reading. One of them is Keelan DeLich, which I'm not going to spell out loud, but again, we'll, we'll have to put together some show notes. <laughs> and then there's the New International Commentary in the New Testament, which I bought my copies of that. When, when the Maxwell Institute changed directions and what they're doing, they sold a lot of their library to Pioneer Book in Provo, Utah. And I went in there and found you cleaned them out. Multiple, huh? <laughs> I, I found multiple volumes. I, I'm sure others had already been bought, but I found multiple volumes of the New International Commentary on the New Testament and the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. And so I've been reading those. And so I, this means you'll have 30 pages of reading for each chapter. <laughs> I, I do, again, I'm a glutton for punishment. My wife tells me this, and it's true. She's right. So that's what we're we're bringing to the podcast. Um, all these books that that we're reading and and these podcasts that we're listening to and and we're integrating these and most importantly our own hermeneutic which mm. we'll get to that too right so what are these assumptions we've been talking about from the ancient interpreters that I say we've inherited that are baked into our English translations what are right. those and and how do we know this yeah there there's um there's a lot going on here there's four four main assumptions and then there's a lot of like sub stuff that you can pull out of these um but essentially it is assumed and th- this is this is basically from kugel right this is this is out of kugel yeah james kugel wrote how to read the bible yeah and he so was, he identifies he at harvard right that sounds right and he, uh, he and identifies learned, these these assumptions he, he's been on the maxwell institute podcast as well i believe he has yeah he was yeah. on uh, he talked about his book he was also pete Enz's teacher Oh, okay. Yeah, that would yeah. make sense. A Google is mm-hmm. a a top notch Bible scholar. I mean, yeah, yeah, just top top notch stuff. So he identifies four and he actually, main assumptions. He comes down on the on the um, reading the Bible religiously and critically. Yeah, he he mostly does it critically as a scholar. Yeah, you know, as a as a day job because that's what you write and about. religiously. <laughs> that's right, and religiously as as devotion, as personal devotion. Although in the Jewish tradition. It is the Midrash or it's the Talmud. It is the the oral Torah and the commentaries of the rabbis are what interpret the Bible. Right. And it's the same thing in the Islamic tradition. The Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, are, are interpret the, Those the Quran. So the, the Quran context. has primacy, yeah. and yet it's interpreted via the 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 Hadith. And it's the same thing in the Jewish tradition. The Bible has primacy, and yet it's interpreted by the oral Torah. Right. And so is there something like that in our own tradition, Ben? That's a good question. Um, yes. Um, I don't know how how much it's written unless you want to say like conference talks 
I think you can say conference talks, and we can go yeah. back to this idea of what is scripture. We have teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. You know, we have these different right. books. Yeah, all the different books that are that are maybe not canonical, but semi-canonical. Right. And and the sacra- and the uh, talks that that you mentioned, the conference talks, can also be considered at least semi-canonical. Sure. And so I think our version of that, we really do. I just want to point out that this is done in all traditions, including in ours. And for my Baptist neighbor, same thing, right? He's going by what he says the Bible says, which comes from Mr. MacArthur or Dr. Yeah. I don't know if he's Dr. MacArthur, right? It's the, the branded exegesis, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, anyway, circling back to these assumptions. Okay. So number one, um, quote from Google, it is assumed that the Bible was a fundamentally cryptic text. That is when it said a, it often might really mean B. That means the meaning is hidden. Right and has to be discovered and is not completely obvious on the surface. Right, cryptic. So, isn't it interesting then that they didn't think the Bible should be read literally? <laughs> isn't that ironic? And so, yeah. as a reaction again to modern biblical criticism, you get yep. this fundamentalist uh, approach of reading literally. But the ancient interpreters didn't. That wasn't the assumption they, they approached yeah. the text with. The assumption they brought it brought was cryptic. Yeah, and if you're a modern uh, fundamentalist reading literally, you're reading an English translation that includes the ancient assumptions baked into that it. Weren't literally. literal. Yeah, <laughs> that weren't literal. It's right. It's right. a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely some issues there with that hermeneutic. <laughs> so number two, here's the second assumption that ancient interpreters made. Interpreters also assumed that the Bible was a book of lessons directed to readers in their own day. Right. So we, we in our in our tradition, we often quote the scripture from Nephi that says, I, I liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. In other words, scriptures weren't just what happened, you know, a long time ago or what God said to this person. They also have a a personal applicable meaning and an and intention to them. And so, well, that goes back again to our definition of scripture. So, the sacred text is one thing, but scripture is what does this mean to me? The relationship with the text, the relationship that I have with the text. So, it's interesting too that uh, to to keep in mind when we say that the interpreters assume that that the the readers uh, could get a message in their own day is that even the people who put the Bible together post Babylonian exile were dealing with. Texts that to, to them were old. They're mm. already old. So this is this kind of assumption was already, now it's even more, right? That we have this idea that these ancient texts have something to say to us today. And and I, and I think they do. And and that quote from Rob Bell that I read says it all, right? They deal with all these, these aspects of the human condition that we live with and deal with every day. So uh, a third assumption here is that interpreters assumed that the Bible contained no contradictions or mistakes. Okay. So and that they would be proven wrong on. But yeah, this is quite quite a big assumption that we have to recognize, you know, about the ancient interpreters that that we get these texts from. And the the interesting thing about this is that we have in Latter-day Saint tradition an interesting sort of cognitive dissonance on this because we often we treat scripture as if it's inerrant where scri- our scripture itself 
proclaims itself as not being inerrant. I mean, right there in the title page of the Book of Mormon, what does Mormon say? He says, and now if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. Wherefore, condemn not the things of God that you may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, Mormons, you know, and it says this several times throughout it, like we probably made some mistakes. And guess what? We find mistakes in the Book of Mormon from time to time. Um, Sometimes they are, it turns out they are mistakes that have been perpetuated in the the transcription of it or the printing of it. And so, you know, there's a whole set of scholarship that has gone into that. Royal Skousen did a whole thing on that, which is really, really fascinating on the earliest text stuff. But but again, going back to the idea that a lot, the Latter-day Saint tradition, you know, if we really look at at what our, our scripture says, does not pronounce itself as inerrant. Right. Um, even though we sometimes treat it that way and and we do so to our own our own detriment i think a lot of times and so we have to be we got to be careful yeah and when it comes to you know fundamentalism literalism versus modern biblical criticism we've already mentioned some of the scholars that we've read who we've also heard interviewed on the Maxwell Institute podcast and you t- you mentioned the earliest text of the book of mormon Royal Skousen put 20 years into coming up with the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, looking at manuscripts, mm-hmm. and he came out and he published the text with Yale, and it's it has 600 differences from the one that the church publishes that we read in in our standard works. Yeah, and yet this was he gave a series of lectures on it at BYU. Yeah, he, he's he's speaking on it at BYU, and so by the way, right around the same time that he published the text with 600 differences the church actually put out a new text of the Book of Mormon with six differences. Do we even, do, do Latter-day Saints even realize that there's a, there were these six changes made? And what, what are they and what do they mean? Yeah. By the way, not all these changes are, are substantive, right? Sure. But some of them are. Yeah. There, there was one we brought up um, in Doctrine and Covenants that I brought up a couple times when I was talking with Shiloh because um, there was... In in the older versions of Doctrine and Covenants, it says thrash the nations, okay. and thrash is something you do with a whip, like you beat something, like really, yes. it's, it's a very violent thing. But um, it's because whoever whoever wrote that, which I'd have to go back and look, I think it, in those it would have been Oliver Cowdery. His his E looked like an A, and so right. it was perpetuated as thrash until just recently. They changed it and said, no, it's not thrash, it's thresh. And thresh is, really is a completely different. different word, and it actually does change the meaning of it because it, it goes along with the, the metaphor. So these are the kinds of things that um, you know they happen even in our tradition of perpetuating scripture, and and that's even with like modern technology and techniques and 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 scrutiny. Imagine, just imagine, what happened anciently with these kinds of things. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of room for error. So. Yeah, there's 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 copy errors too. We talk about translation errors. There, there's also copy errors, and, and you don't have to. There doesn't have to be ma- any malintent. There can right. be. There can be right. emendations. And again, the the Masoretes did their best to make sure that wouldn't happen. And yet, you know, it's copy errors. I mean, have you ever been reading and you you skipped a line? If you're copying, that's reading and writing, right? And, you, and especially if you're looking back and forth, and I don't know, even if you use your finger, you even you can use your finger to read, and you can still end up skipping a line. Or sometimes the way things are printed, the same word shows up at the end of the line. That's the cause. Uh, at other times, you just I don't know what you do. You just skip over a whole line, and you don't even notice. Yeah. And someone has to point it out to you. 
Yeah. So that that happens too. So that was the third uh, assumption that the that the Bible didn't contain any contradictions or mistakes. The the fourth assumption, lastly, would be that that the ancient interpreters believed that the entire Bible was essentially a divinely given text. Okay, every single thing in it was divinely given, given from God. It was a book in which God speaks directly or through his prophets. So again, I think in, in Latter-day Saint tradition, we often do treat scripture this way, except that that's not what our scripture says, and that's not how we're invited to treat scripture. But I think we're invited to treat scripture differently. We don't, we're not invited to treat scripture as dictation from God. Like in Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about how God gave it to them in their own language according to their understanding. And we're supposed to understand it, as we talk about with the Apocrypha, by the Spirit. And so Scripture isn't meant to, to necessarily be a dictation from God, notwithstanding many Scriptures that, that are phrased that way, right? We That's always right. know that Scripture is given through a, a human that provides their own cultural coloring and context to it and that understanding that um, will help us understand the scripture better so yeah i wanted to comment on the uh, thrash versus thresh yeah <laughs> yeah word you know that if there another thing that we can do in our hermeneutics and in our interpretation and and and, and others can do too right listeners can do is if you find something troublesome just wait, right? <laughs> there may be Put something that shelf. comes out. Yeah, there may be something that comes out, whether it's an interpretation, whether it's discovering that there's a literary genre to it that tells you how to read it, whether it was a mis, uh, whether it was a, a mis translation or a um, a misspelling or misreading or something, right? And then also again, be open to other translations, to other versions. Even this, uh, as I mentioned, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. Another thing about the earliest text of the Book of Mormon is it includes, uh, it's in sense lines. So because the paragraphing and sentencing, all the punctuation was done by the printers on the fly, they weren't part of the original manuscript, Skousen took that out. He hmm. said, let's put this in sense lines. We'll take the smallest unit of text that's meaningful by itself, which is not going to be a sentence, but rather a clause and put that on one of those on each line. And then he put the verse numbers in so you could follow yeah. along with your, yeah. Yeah. your church oh, edition. One thing I wanted to say about Skousen, you, you know, you talked about how he spent 20 years doing this and, and yeah. I mean, it just, his, his work is, is fantastic. But even I was watching the lectures he did on it and he said, yeah, well, since we found a bunch more errors, you know, like, so like even the 20 years he spent on it meticulously, oh gosh, the work he published yeah. even had errors in it. Right. So like, these, this is just part of human experience, and we have to be able to roll with the punches, so to speak. And so we could say, well, why listen to these guys? You know, they they don't even know the bottom line. Well, one thing we can do is we can take everything, whether it's the ancient interpreter's assumptions, whether it's the modern scholar's assumptions, whether it's our own assumptions. We can we can have this epistemology of maybe a little bit of skepticism. You know, a healthy skepticism, hmm. one that, that allows for the possibility of more than one possibility, right? Something sure. like that. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, we're, we are going to approach uh, the Old Testament with primarily a particular hermeneutic. We may switch, you know, here and there, but this should never, ever be construed as 
the one and only way to read scripture. And I gosh, no. I I I think that's a strong point that I need to bring out. I I do not believe there is a one and only way to read scripture. I think every time you come across a verse, you're going to read it in a different way because you're a different person than you were 5 minutes ago, much less, you know, a year or two ago when you read that scripture last. And so there there are infinite numbers of ways to read every scripture and that's good. That means it's constantly, uh, you know, we're constantly uh, gleaning from it and and gaining uh, more important meaning and understanding and improving our relationship with God. So, yeah, going back to that quote from Carlyle from earlier again, in every object there is inexhaustible meaning. The eye sees in it what the eye brings means of seeing, which again is uh, the the seeing is the exegesis. The means of seeing is the hermeneutic. It's the hermeneutic, right. Right. So what about authorship? What about composition? Who wrote this stuff? And by the way, we've already covered that there are those who wrote it and there are those who, who put it together and decided what should be included and what should not be included and, and who brought together maybe disparate text. And the again, we have this, this assumption of the ancient interpreters that it's one thing. And that it's, you know, it comes from God as this one thing, but apparently it was multiple different texts put together and even two different stories about uh, ancient Israel uh, that are actually not even reconcilable and different writers with different goals, perhaps. Tell us a little bit about the documentary hypothesis, Ben. How does so, that play into this conversation? Yeah, so documenting our hypothesis, basically... <laughs> There, for for a long time, the tradition was uh, that, that you know, obviously it's more expansive than this. But for example, the 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 assumption was for a long time that the what we call the five books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That we call them the five books of Moses because the assumption was that Moses wrote them, right? These had a single author. His name was Moses. He's named in them and so forth. And that that was kind of the the tradition, um, conventional way of, of looking at this. Funny story about that, Ben. Um, in in one of those books, it says that Moses, now this is this has to be now Moses talking about himself, that Moses was a very humble man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of funny, right? Yeah. Because if Moses wrote it and Moses is a humble man, why is he writing? First of all, why is he writing about himself in the third person? And why is he saying he's a humble man? Yeah. There's a lot of things like that that bring out that are like, you know, this this is an odd way of somebody writing something if, uh, you know, if, if they're writing about themselves. And so more and more biblical scholarship has gone in and been able to identify through through sophisticated means that there are potentially um, something like four different authors of these books. And they, they get identified by letters, J, E, D, and P. I remember P stands for priest, but I'm trying to remember what the right, other so ones you have, stand for. You have the Yahwist, which is the one yes, who calls there we go. God yeah, yeah. Uh, Yahweh. You El- have the Elohist, Elohist, who calls God Elohim. Elohim. Yes. Okay. I don't remember what D stands for. The Deuteronomist, maybe? And then the priestly author. Yeah, and they have different goals, Ben. If, right. So, by the way, one of those sophisticated methods you talked about that scholars use. Can I just insert a note here? Yeah. It's reading. Yeah. <laughs> Remember going back to going back to defending the scriptures. Defending them makes us unable to read them, and not reading them makes it easier, conversely, for us to defend them. 
And so a lot of people who are arguing about what the scriptures say, like those people who are telling, who are pretending to tell me what the Quran says without having read it, haven't read the scriptures. If you want to take the scriptures literally, all you have to do is jump into Genesis one and two, and they contradict each other. Hmm. They're, they're telling, they're from, they're likely from two different authors with two different goals and purposes and intents in writing. Right. And, and they just, they contradict each other. So you can't get very far if you're actually reading, especially if you're reading carefully and closely. And again, this is not a, a devotional reading, and this does not preclude the possibility of a devotional reading. A devotional reading goes back to that ancient idea of reading out loud or having it read out loud to you and letting the language wash over you. And again, this is a good reason to keep the King James Version in that practice. Hmm. And that's that's one thing. But reading closely and critically is another, and we want to do both. So this kind of brings us to the idea of of myth versus truth. Now, Shiloh and I have talked about this in, in previous podcasts that when we talk about myth, where you know myth is used in our vernacular a lot of times to mean uh, something that isn't true, that a isn't lie, true, yeah. right? When a it's myth, really just a fancy is, word for story, yeah, synonym for for lie, but. In, in the actual scriptural and ancient text tradition, myth is not a lie. Myth is a, a story that actually is meant to convey a truth within a particular cultural context. And so myth is not a lie. It's metaphor. And there's a sense in which myth is meta-true. And what I mean by that is that the truth that's presented in it is not what we might look at as objective historical truth, but deeper truths about the human experience and human consciousness and the nature of God that can't be conveyed in like an objective historical sense. They must be conveyed in a metaphorical way because we don't have any other way of presenting them. Our language and our consciousness is inadequate to do so in any other way. And so they're presented in a mythological way because that can be packaged up. And and so it presents, it's actually what we might call meta-true or more true than it would be if you tried to describe it in a historical objective way. Because if you tried to do it in a historical objective way, you would fail much more at presenting the actual concepts of truth than the metaphorical myth does. Yeah, and it's important to realize that the ancient author's did not have our modern historical method. It's, right. it's a recent phenomenon. I have a right. quote here from, from another great book, this one by Karen Armstrong, The Lost Art of Scripture. She writes, Precise historical writing is a recent phenomenon. It became possible only when archaeological methodology and improved knowledge of ancient languages radically enhanced our understanding of the past. Because it does not conform to modern scientific and historical norms, many people dismiss scripture as incredible and patently untrue, in quote marks, untrue. But they do not apply the same criteria to a novel, which yields profound and valuable insights by means of fiction. Nor do they dismiss the poetic genius of Milton's Paradise Lost because its account of the creation of Adam does not accord with the evolutionary hypothesis. Because that's not what, the, that's not what they're doing. Right. They're not doing history the way we do it, and, and they, they didn't have a way to do that. So they're doing something else. What has that been? So we're talking in this sense uh, about sacred history, which when we say sacred history, again, this is presented in a way that 
is meant to convey this might be mythological, but even if we step away from the mythological concept, we're looking at something that is often etiological. So etiological, um, I, I kind of pronounce it in a way there to to make sure that we're not talking about ideology, but etiology. This this is a, a concept that deals with where things came from, how they originated. You know, lots of fables are etiological that that talk about, you know, this is where this came from or this is how this came to be. And when we talk about sacred history, that's often where we're going with that, um, especially when we talk about uh, Genesis. There's a lot of origin stories here in Genesis. And and these aren't meant to be historical in the way that we talk about history today. They're meant or to scientific, be, yeah, or scientific. They're meant to be etiological to in in a in a mythological or metaphorical way to describe to a community the origin of their sacred ideas and the things that they consider sacred and and important as a community, and in a way that in the only way that they knew how to present that right yeah. they didn't have a, another way of passing this type of tradition and culture down but through this quote unquote sacred history so and we can see this in other ancient writings i myself have read the myths from mesopotamia that the biblical authors were using so for example the flood story it's in the gilgamesh and there are other examples. So there are there are these myths that are contemporary to the authors of the Bible, and they're part of their own milieu. They're part of their own place and time, right? Their readers probably know them too. So they know them. Their readers know them. They, they know their readers know them. And they take these myths and they repurpose them for their own purposes. And this isn't altogether strange to us because we see the New Testament authors doing the same thing with the Old Testament. And if you study the the Quran, you'll find out that the 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 author of the Quran did the same thing with the Bible stories from both the Old and New Testament, and used them. The Quran assumes that you know the Bible. You have to yeah. already know the Bible stories, right? Because it's going to tell you versions of the Bible stories. Like the New Testament assumes you know the Old Testament. Exactly, and the authors of the New Testament knew their Old Testament inside and out. So when you say myths, I, I think of Joseph Campbell, who's the mythologist par excellence, right? Yeah, he wrote a thousand faces. We've got a couple of great quotes from, from Joseph Campbell about mythology. Do you want to read one? Joseph Campbell uh, talked about mythology in this way. He says, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It's, it is metaphorical. It has been well said that mythology is the penultimate truth. Penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond mm. words, beyond images, beyond that bounding rim of the Buddhist wheel of becoming. Mythology pitches the mind beyond that rim to what can be known but not told. So this is this is a, definitely a more eloquent told. way of saying what I was talking about earlier. Oh, yeah. You know, the penultimate truth, the second to last, right? Mm. So the ultimate, the last, you know, the ultimate thing to know is the truth. But you can't put that into words. That's you can revelation. only point That's an at experience. it. Right. That's yeah. an experience of the divine. That's the ultimate truth. That's what we call it ultimate reality. But we can't put that into words. So the penultimate truth is these words that we put down on paper or papyrus or whatever that we use a stylus and put into clay. 
they're just second best, right? The metaphorical it's, bringing the horse to water but can't make it drink thing. So, Yeah. So here's another quote from Joseph Campbell. The myth is the public dream and the dream is the private myth. So it shows this relationship between, because the dream world is an imaginal world. And the world of uh, the, the unseen world, as it's called in the Islamic tradition, where there are realities that are unseen, right? And the dream world, they have something in common. You know, in the Islamic tradition, they say that when you go to sleep, your soul returns to God. Your soul is just tired of the world and has to go rest with God. I, I love that. I don't know if it's true, but, <laughs> but it's probably meta true, right? It's definitely meta true. And it's a beautiful thought. And so then there's also Carl Jung, who, by the way, influenced Joseph Campbell. And Carl Jung is the one who gives us this idea that, that there are these archetypal images. Speaking of dreams again, he noticed that people, when they talk about their dreams, they have these things that they know from their dreams that they didn't get from somewhere else and that they have them in common with everyone else. And so he noticed that there are these archetypes of what he calls the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. So again, from that dream world, let's say, so from an imaginal realm. And I think it's important for us as we read the scriptures that we get out of our heads a little bit, out of our rational discursive mindset, which by the way is very Greek, not Hebrew. It doesn't, it doesn't concord well with the way that the texts were written and the mentality, the, the, the way of thinking of the people who wrote them. And we go into a more imaginal way of thinking. Yeah, so that that would kind of step into the the lectio divina tradition somewhat, right? We're we're allowing the the text to speak to us on a a different level than yeah. than we might, you know, maybe a subconscious or unconscious level. Yeah. So let's go into a little bit of these differences that I've been hinting at between ancient Near Eastern thought and modern Western thought. They really are worlds apart, and I mean. That, that wasn't intended to be a pun, <laughs> but they really are worlds apart, aren't they? We're talking about a different uh, place and a different time. And so just to briefly go through some of these ideas, the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews, thought differently than the Greeks. And, and we're not Greek, right? I'm American. Ben, you're American. I'm half Venezuelan, still not Greek, right? <laughs> but what I mean by that, again, is this idea that that we've inherited the Greek philosophical tradition and that whole rational right. discursive way of thinking and it's completely different from the ancient near eastern way of thinking in in some key ways and so again from scripture study tools and suggestions by james e faulkner uh, who at least was a professor of philosophy at byu i don't know if he still is we have some great ideas here on how to study scriptures i mean in the book not not here in the podcast but here in the podcast i wanted to include some of his ideas that he brings out about the difference between hebrew and greek thinking and so there's differences in form and matter, differences in, in what being means, differences in what the word means. And by the way, Riley and I recently recorded an episode logos. on the logos, which is a very Greek way of thinking about the word and very much valid for us to think about when we think about the New Testament. Right. But here we're talking about the Old Testament. Yeah, the New Testament's definitely a little more Greek. And and yeah, I should throw in the caveat, we're, when we say, you know, we want to step into Hebrew thinking. That's not because we're we're saying one is better than the other or more important than the other, but we're saying we're stepping into the Old Testament. And because right. our entire culture is so steeped in, in Greek thinking, we really this is something we really have to be conscious of because if we approach the Old Testament with a Greek methodology, 
we're going to miss so much. So we have to we have to go to the Hebrew thought pattern to to be able to really pull out more than we would have otherwise missed. Again, this isn't placing one above the other in terms of no. like uh, you know importance or hierarchy. They both have their advantages, and and Greek the Greek tradition has given you know our our culture enormous power and ability to accomplish amazing things, but uh, you know. Well, we've, science. We've lost the, that. Modern scientific yeah. method, right? It yeah. comes we've from lost that way the, of thinking. The Hebrew mode of thinking, if we want to understand more about what the Old Testament's talking about. So, yeah. Um, so, and there's another caveat here, Ben, you know, going back to a, an idea that, that we mentioned earlier, and that is that the oldest text that we have of the Old Testament is actually Greek. It's actually Greek. Yes. It's, it's, it's very difficult Greek. to no. get away from. <laughs> yeah. Now we do have the Masoretic text and that's nice, but it's not as old. And we always value the older text, right? In, in a certain way. So, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out that because the Masoretic text comes from the Hebrew manuscripts and oral tradition, it has that going for it. But because the Septuagint, even though it's a translation of earlier Hebrew manuscripts and oral traditions, is older than it has that going for it. Hmm. And so there's just, we'll, you know, we'll be looking at whatever, it, whatever it takes to help us bring the insights that we're going to bring to the podcast through our hermeneutic, which we will, we will get here too. Uh, also. So let's just go into a little bit of what these, these different ways of thinking entail. So uh, in terms of examples of, of differences between Hebrew and Greek thinking, you know, uh, Christopher, you brought up uh, the difference in, in how they approach form and matter. So, so here uh, I'll just kind of read, read some commentary on this here. Uh, in Western thought, form and matter, or an analogous distinction, genus and species, are separate. We use both concepts to describe an object and form, that is genus, is more important because it is less changeable. In contrast, Hebrews do not make this distinction. If we were to make it for them, we would have to say that for Hebrews, the material, not the form, is most important. In Hebrew, to change the material is to change the object. In other words, the form or matter distinction is Greek, Indo-European, rather than Hebrew, Semitic. Unlike Greek, Hebrew does not conceive of anything immaterial or unembodied even in thought. That concept is required, however, to make the form or matter distinction, and perhaps it is required to believe that ultimate reality is absolutely static. So this comes out of Faulkner here. I think an interesting part about this commentary here, especially from a Latter-day Saint tradition, is saying that that Hebrew doesn't conceive of anything immaterial or unembodied. I mean, that's just Joseph Smith, right? <laughs> I mean, he says there's no immaterial matter. So he really was, you know, despite all of the Greek influence he would have already had, um, there were a lot of things that Joseph Smith was trying to, to approach Hebrew thought, especially towards the end of his life. We can see that in, in some of the, the lectures that he gave and stuff, but that, that just screamed Joseph Smith there that, that, the Hebrew thought doesn't conceive of anything immaterial, even in thought. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that it wasn't until the time of Jesus, you know, around the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that that there was any idea of an afterlife of the soul, right? An afterlife was, you know, going down to Sheol was like going down to Hades. It was a bodily experience. Hmm. It was hmm. a material thing, not a spiritual thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Western philosophers. You know, Aristotle is the one that gives us this whole genus and species and the categories and our way of thinking. Even if you've never 
heard of Aristotle, which I think most people have at least heard of Aristotle, but even if you've never read Aristotle, your whole way of thinking as a Westerner is Aristotelian in so many ways. And there's Platonic ways. Taxonomies and stuff. Yeah, Taxonomies, all of that. Yeah, it's very, yeah. you can't help but think that way. That's the way you were raised. And yeah. so that's part of your way of, uh, our way of thinking as Westerners that isn't part of the Hebrew way of thinking. Categorizing. And, yeah. and the, the other thing that's important about this is that for the Greeks, that which is, that which is unchanging is, is, this, is the most important thing, right? It's, change is seen as a defect. Hmm. Whereas for Hebrew thinking, things are much more dynamic than that. It, yeah. it really is all about, about action. So if, I, if, if we talk about the word to bring that up next, the idea of the word is that, as Faulkner puts it in Hebrew, what can be said or the word is the truth. This word is the spoken word, the command, and includes inseparably the deed, thus the creative voice of God in Genesis 1. In Hebrew thinking, language is doing and activity. The word is what is brought about in speaking. It's what's brought about in speaking. It's not what stands behind the spoken word as an abstract concept. So again, this idea of having these abstract concepts where the thing is separate from the word or the concept is separate from the word, that's our way of thinking. That's not the ancient Hebrew way of thinking. Hmm. That's a very difficult concept to enter into because like... It is. You, you say that and I'm like, ah, what do you mean? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Yeah, because our entire our entire method of, of approaching, you know, interpreting the world is, is very, yeah, very different. Yeah, and so when it comes to, even when it comes to things like like are adam and eve historical persons or are they archetypes you know for a greek way of thinking we have to say we have to pick one and say that's the literal meaning and right. the other one would be figurative so you see one is concrete and the other is abstract yeah but but for an ancient israelite for for the hebrew people it's just yes yeah. the answer is yes yeah. it's yeah. both and yeah right and they don't, they, they, that's not a problem for them they don't see it that way right so then there's being, you know, when you're reading the Bible in the King James Bible, anytime you see any form of the verb to be, that's going to be italicized in your King James Bible, King James Version. Why? Right. It's the way, it's, it's the King James um, scholar's way of saying, this word is not in the original. I'm inserting it here so that this will make sense in English because there, there's no verb to be in, in Hebrew. They're just not, not they're just, is there not, is there not to the be same in, as the okay. same as uh, Arabic, right? I was going to say in Arabic, now, well, there is a verb to be in Arabic, well, but it's implied in certain, in, in certain contexts. You don't use it. Right. So really in, in Arabic and I think in Hebrew too, and I'm not, um, I've only studied a little biblical Hebrew, Ben, but in Arabic, we don't, what we have are these words that, that connote the passing of time. And there's more than one, right? There's there may be, I, I think I know which one you have in mind, but there there are others, and all of them really are saying that time has passed. That's really what's going on, and so that's interesting to think about too, right? Because again, time and space are other ways in which our thoughts vary from from these ancient Near Eastern thoughts. But the Hebrew concept of being, it means that to be a person is to do what persons do to put it in, in uh, Faulkner's terms. The person is because he or she is alive. For Hebrew thought, the life is an activity, not a state. For Hebrew thought, the it's essence of what it means. Yeah. So what it means to be, that's the same thing defines what it is. So this comes into play right away as we go into Genesis, right? Because 
we think that to to exist means to have properties like extension and dimension and you know you take up space and things like this that's not what it means to be for for ancient Near Eastern thought it's to have a name and a function and so when you go through Genesis 1 you know you, you'll see this right it's things are named and they're given a function and that's how they come into being so it doesn't mean that they they didn't exist in the way that we think of existing their being was there as Joseph Smith said it's creation ex materia, right? It's out of ex- out of pre-existing mm. yeah. things in the Greek sense of thingness. But in the creation, what we call the creation in Genesis 1, we're dealing with then what is called, you know, what is a naming and a fun- and giving of a function. And that's how things come into being in the in this ancient Near Eastern pattern of thought. Yeah, I, I I was exposed to that idea, at least in a more articulated way, in Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis One. So there, right. he's got a whole series of them, but but that would be a, another one I would recommend that that really oh, yeah. really was fascinating on this concept of we're going to get into it when we get into creation. But um, right. just the idea of creation uh, was was uh, approached differently in in a Hebrew mindset than than a Greek, and again that that really was present in, in Joseph Smith's mindset when he started talking about creation, you know, ex materia versus ex nihilo type stuff. So, yeah. And so when you talk about uh, earlier, you were talking about these spheres of meaning. If we take the Greek and Hebrew word for, um, you know, for word, you know, the word for word, uh, you've mentioned that the Greek is logos. And I, I mentioned that we did a podcast on the logos in uh, for Latter-day Contemplation, Riley and I did. And this spheres of meaning conversation comes into play because we can see that at some point they kind of look like the same word. But if you look, if you go backward where they come from, the etymology, and if you bring them forward in meaning, then they start to they start to move apart and they start mm. to become really yeah. different. So right. this is something that we may have to bring up again as we go through. And then there's picture thinking and non-picture thinking. We're, we have this Greek way of thinking in pictures. So if you read something like the Iliad, you're going to find out what Achilles' armor looked like and what his shield looked like and how it gleamed in the sunshine and how it had this depicted on it. And it's all about these painting pictures, the, the, the poet Homer aesthetic. painting pictures yeah. in your mind. It's not so much aesthetic. It's just that it's creating pictures in your mind. Okay. Whereas, whereas the way uh, the Hebrew way of thinking is more non-picture thinking and so when you read about how the temple is built it's not about how it looks it's about how uh it's about the materials and how it functions so again it's about it yeah 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 and what things do and how yeah it's very much this non-picture way of thinking then there's space and things and time and history so we think of i'll just give an example we think of uh as in greek thought that the promised land is a an empty space where if where, that we can move into, but for the Hebrews, there's no promised land unless there's a promised people living there. Hmm. It's not an empty space. It's only the promised land because the promised people inhabit it. Right. So it's a completely different way of thinking about space. And then it's like it's only dinner if you're sitting down to eat it. Otherwise, it's just food on a plate. Right? Exactly. That's a good <laughs> analogy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we think of dinner. I think in a Greek way of thinking to stretch your analogy, dinner can be that food on the plate. There's dinner. 
that and so for as Greeks we're okay with that as in a Greek way of thinking we're okay with that but that's not happening for Hebrew it's not dinner yeah. unless we're we're having dinner right yeah and so then there's time the Book of Mormon has the same concept of time as the as the and it isn't you know this ancient Near Eastern way of thinking of time which is more cyclical we think of time in a line and so there's sort of like there's before now now and after now. And this is not what it looks like for for ancient Near Eastern thought. Right. It's not. It's not like that at all. So, Faulkner writes as part of our thinking about time, the Indo-European or Greek languages have three tenses describing three relations possible. Right on the timeline. So you have um, standing in the present, and then you have the past, and this moment before this moment, and after this moment, as I said before. But the Hebrew has essentially two tenses, meaning it's either complete or incomplete. And if you know your grammar, it, this is something like the perfect and imperfect tenses. And I'm assuming most people don't know their grammar, but hey, if you do know your grammar, that may be helpful. So it's yeah. either something is complete or it's incomplete. So you can see again, that it's all, it's all about action. Huh. It's all about action. It's not this abstraction of before, now, now, after, now. And there's this, there's a cyclical sense of time. Um, there's this idea of of uh, even of the possibility, I, I think the temple experience in antiquity is about the possibility of returning to the beginning. So you're not just learning about the creation when you go to the temple; you're actually returning to the beginning. You're returning to this this mythical, what uh, Mircea Eliade, the the comparative religious scholar Mircea Eliade calls, um, in illo tempore, which is Latin for in that time, in the beginning. So how does the Genesis start? In the beginning, right? This is the idea. And so this is where we get our, our conclusion that we actually, uh, the conclusion from Faulkner that, that comes from this appendix from his book, this is appendix two. I actually quoted earlier that our common sense, if we think we're going to bring our common sense to the text, our common sense is Greek. It's Greek. Yeah. And if we think, we're, and, and if we don't have, uh, and if we bring our philosophy to it and we don't actually choose a hermeneutic, then we're going to be making all kinds of mistakes, or, or at least we're going to be interpreting in a way that we don't realize that, that there's a way we're interpreting and we're thinking it's the way. Yeah. We aren't conscious of that it's of, a way. Yeah. Of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that brings us to how to read the Bible. How do we read the Bible? Right. This is, this is where we go into hermeneutics and exegesis. And there are a couple of other things I think that we want to cover first, right? I already mentioned this idea that in antiquity, reading was not something that you did alone and, and you know, silently. It's something that was done, you either read out loud or it was read out loud to you because you didn't know how to read. And there's a liturgical experience. And there's, by the way, there's intonation and maybe incantation. You know, some people think that the Quran is sung. It's not really sung, it's recited, but yeah. there is a, a certain way it's of doing It's melodic though, somewhat. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is, yeah. And I've gone to Greek Orthodox Church when I was studying Arabic in Jordan and part of the liturgy is really this recitation of the of the Bible, and it's yeah. done in a certain way, and it's done by uh, the person who knows how to do it. And so there's this idea of reading out loud and with a teacher. In some traditions, it's not the word you can't even, even if you had it written down, it, it's not that that's not the scripture, right? The Quran, Quran means recitation. The thing that's written down isn't the Quran; it's a mushaf. You know, it's a it's a what would that be? Is something like a codex, right? It's a codex. Hmm. It's it's not the Quran. The Quran is a recitation. I mean, in the yeah, in the Hindu tradition, you know, uh, 
the Vedas, it was so they thought it was so funny that the the English. Well, funny is probably not the right word. They thought it odd that the English would be so so determined to translate the Vedas um, to have them in their language because um, for you know in Hinduism the that the actual meaning of the words is totally secondary to the the sacred sound that you hear in the recitation of them and so that was much more important than the than the meaning of the words themselves so yeah you know if you haven't heard sanskrit recited it's just incredible there's a a youtube channel called gaya sanskrit g-a-i-e-a gaya Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That which is the the Greek word for the the goddess of uh, Mother Earth, right? This is Gaya Sanskrit. It's incredible, you know, to to have the experience. And you can also yeah. listen to recitation of Quran, which you know some actually find uh, obnoxious, right? But <laughs> and it's something that uh, it's an acquired it taste. Used maybe. To. It is. It really is. It's something you get used yeah. to. Um, there, there's a certain way of doing it. For me, you know, even if I were to recite some Quran from memory. It would be melodic and it would be it would rhyme and you would be able to notice that even if you don't know Arabic, but I wouldn't do it in in Tajweed, you know, in this this actual official way of reciting. Right. And there the are actually art. multiple it's an ways, art. right? There's an art, and yeah. there and there are contests and everything. So again, we're back to uh, we mentioned earlier listening on your phone. That's something, right? Yeah. And again, I encourage listeners read out loud to yourself, read the poetic translations, read the King James Bible, and have these these um devotional experiences that's one thing read religiously and then there's also reading critically and they can be completely separate activities and they can be combined so another thing that we've kind of covered already ben is this idea that 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 everything that is said is said in a context and that it's that context gives meaning and and therefore dropping context is going to lead to misinterpretation we've covered that in sort of different ways but I wanted to bring that up, and when we talk, as we talk about how to read the Bible, it's important to realize, as as um, as Rob Bell points out, that he says, "Do you want to read the quote, Ben, from Rob Bell?" It's important to point out that these writers and the people who decided whether or not to include their writings in the Bible were real living people in real places at real times. Real people, yeah. Their purposes in writing then were shaped by their times and places and contexts and psyches, and personal histories, and economies, and politics, and religion, and technology, and countless other factors. And not so a read single comma in there. But it's very important. Right, he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's doing that again. It's, it's, yeah. I think we did read this quote earlier. It's, but nice it's this idea device. that there are all these things that go into the way that they're writing. It's the, And so that's not our context. And so we have to understand their context if we want to have that kind of understanding of the text. And so we've talked about doing various readings and uh, of, of different translations and doing word studies. Now we come to hermeneutics and exegesis. What do these words mean? Hermeneutics, exegesis, what is that? And we did do an episode on this, on hermeneutics, right? We defined For hermeneutics earlier. I don't think we yeah, defined exegesis. True. Yeah. Yeah, so you said that the hermeneutics is that lens through which we look. And so exegesis is just what we see. Right. It's, yeah. it's the pulling out a, an interpretation. So that's one that. metaphor to go out with. I mean, another kind of way that I was thinking about it is like, if you think of the scripture as like soil, then a hermeneutic might be like whatever seed you plant in that soil, you know, what, what type of tree. And then the exegesis is the fruit that you get 
from that. Oh, I love that, Ben. So that's a beautiful that, image. It's kind of a way of, of bringing that out. And, and depending great, on how you cultivate and take care of that hermeneutic and plant, right? You're going to, your fruit's going to be of, of one type or another. So, yeah, it's very, it's very Greek the way you painted that picture, right? But yeah, that's a great image. I love that. Yeah. Makes sense. So what are, what are some of the hermeneutics that we're going to use? And we've been using them, right? We're just here pointing out what we've, what we've been up to and going through, uh, you and Shiloh have been up to and going through the, uh, sometimes me as a, a guest uh, co-host, and now you and I will be doing this. What are our hermeneutics that we use? So I, I could start out and say there's one that we're going to try to avoid, but I'm going to say okay. that it, it might sneak its way in anyway, because sometimes this happens in our, just because of our cultural tradition. I don't know if it's so much a Latter-day Saint tradition. I think there's not a lot of this in the Latter-day Saint tradition. There's some, but you know, in the American tradition, this happens. And that, that is what we would call like a, a fundamentalist literalism uh, hermeneutic. Like I said, we are going to shy away from that and avoid that and try to identify that and, and uh, go a different way. But um, I'm going to throw out there that it's possible because, again, of all this cultural baggage that we're always approaching stuff with, that that could that could still come up sometimes. Yeah, we have to try to we have to be conscientious uh, in avoiding it, right? So I, I like what you wrote here. You know, we we don't take the Bible literally, but we take it seriously. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah so we said good. earlier, yeah, <laughs> we don't take the Bible literally, but we do take it seriously. What about a Christological hermeneutic? I think that's something that as Christians, we're always going to, that's going to be a part of how we talk about the Old Testament, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's basically the the gospel of Matthew, right? Like that's kind of, he writes the whole thing, pulling, gleaning from Old Testament stuff to, to develop a Christological uh, hermeneutic. And we do that so much in our our reading of the Old Testament. So here's a, just a couple examples off the top of my head. You know, when we talk about um, Adam and Eve in the garden and, and God comes and he says, he talks to the serpent and, you know, and, and says, you'll have power to, to crush the head of the serpent, right? We read Christ into that. We say, oh, you know, the seed of the woman, that's Christ. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan, right? That's a Christological hermeneutic, right? That's that's not the way that the Jews read the Bible, right? <laughs> no, it's very much the Christian way. Yeah. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, right? Right. It, as a foreshadowing of Christ. That's a Christological way of looking at it as well. So, so many examples. Yeah. So we can say that's the religious way of reading it for Christians, at least, not for mm -hmm. Jews, but for us as Christians, that's a religious way. We can also take, again, the the critical approach, the other approach, and, and, and we'll at least point out and notice that, that maybe Isaiah... We could say, take, take this Christological hermeneutic and say that he's pointing to, ahead to Christ. And this is, again, taking one of those ancient interpreter assumptions that we've inherited and, and also our, you know, Matthew and It's definitely how Nephi felt about it, right? <laughs> yeah, we're Christians, even though Matthew was a Jew, right? So uh, Nephi also, right? But at the same time, we can, we can look and see maybe what, uh, does Isaiah have something to say to his own time? Again, it's this idea that these ancient texts that are already old for the people putting them together uh, have something to say to our time. It's possible, but it's not the only possibility. And so right. we'll look at also the other possibility of what it is that perhaps Isaiah has to say about his own time. If that fits in with, with what we're doing, we can't sure. talk about everything. As a matter of fact, that brings us to our 
the next couple of things that we want to talk about, which are our nonviolent her this is Latter-day Peace studies, right? We have a nonviolent hermeneutic or two, right? Sure. Well, the nonviolent might be sort of the umbrella hermeneutic we're approaching yeah. it with. And and some of the offshoots of that are the cruciform hermeneutic um, that that allows us to to uh, apply a nonviolent hermeneutic in, in a specific way. This was basically, we, we get this from Gregory Boyd um, in his book, Cross Vision. It was very good at uh, useful and at approaching the Old Testament to, to make sense of, of some of these things. And then we go into our Beatitudinal hermeneutic, which we've used throughout the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants to approach scripture from the Beatitudes or in a broader context, the, the Sermon on the Mount um, as a, a lens, a lens. Yeah. As, yeah. as uh, you know, Christ's statement about the gospel, so to speak, right. His, his doctrinal statement, how we use that as statements of, of truth and teaching to then go back to scripture and say, okay, if this is the, the pinnacle of Christ's teaching of, of God's teaching, what he wants us to understand, how is it, that he has been trying to teach this to us throughout all the other scriptures. And so we can, we can pick that out of there. And uh, as we see from, from the Beatitudes. Um, I love the way you put that. Yeah. So if you've been listening to Shiloh and Ben, this has been happening, happening all along. Right. right? And, and then there's one other hermeneutic, I think that we hit a lot, which is the one about the one where we make epistemological versus metaphysical distinctions. Right. 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 There, there's so many concepts that that have gained over time uh, the, sort of this ontological status like sin that that's this thing you know and they're again very Greek way of thinking to it that, that this that this abstract thing and by the way translation comes into play here justice too because, yeah right worthiness these kind of and they become theologically laden with so much baggage and so it, it helps sometimes to think about them epistemologically versus metaphysically. And so we'll continue to do that as we go through the Old Testament, and that'll yield a lot of good fruit. You can decide for yourself, as Joseph Smith put it, whether that tastes good. You know, you'll know when you, when, when you hear a truth because it tastes good, right, as he put it, which is very much, um, gosh, it's very much a Sufi way of talking about an experience of God, right, having a, a taste, what the Sufis call dalk, right? Mm. So I've got a couple of quotes here, Ben. I just, I know that divine violence, and as I mentioned earlier, we mentioned earlier in, in this podcast, divine violence and divinely sanctioned violence are problematic for, for many reading the Bible. M maybe not for all, um, but for many they are. And so I just want to point out in this introductory episode, just to bring in a couple of quotes to, 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 to share the possibility in an overarching way taking into account everything that we've already said here of what it looks like to read this nonviolent. And it's very, it's really not hard to do. And, and this is how it goes. Um, we have a quote from Rob Bell and a quote from Pete Enns. We mentioned Pete Enns as a, a guest on the Maxwell Institute podcast uh, when he wrote, um, what is it? The Bible tells me so. And then you have Rob Bell, the author of what is the Bible? I'll read one. You read the other one. You want to go first? Sure. Okay, so here's Rob Bell. He says, so when you read that God told them to kill everyone in the village, someone wrote that. That's how someone understood that event. Don't drag God into it. The Bible is a library of books reflecting how human beings have understood the divine. 
people at that time believed the gods were with them when they went to war and killed everyone in the village. What you're reading is someone's perspective that reflects the time and place they lived in. It's not God's perspective, it's theirs. And Pete ends writes in the same vein, the Bible is what it looks like when God lets his children tell the story. They tell the story of God from their point of view, with God there with them and next to them, but they're explaining God as best as they can within the culture that provides their language and their concepts. See, this is why Israel's God, Yahweh, is a warrior who kills enemies with the sword and leads them into battle. So they're very much saying the same thing. Isn't that interesting? And and this is kind of the general spirit of how everything that we've actually already covered leads us to reading the Bible in this way. It's understanding the context and the cultural and linguistic context of the people who wrote it and understanding. I really love what you said about the Beatitudinal hermeneutic, because if we have that God has been slowly revealing himself to us over eons, right? But if he comes out, if he actually comes down to earth and and you know and is incarnated in in Jesus of Nazareth and he has this teaching that's the pinnacle of his teaching he has to have been trying to show his true colors all along you know Greg Boyd tells us something in my own words you know in cross vision that if I see somebody who in antiquity you know that these guys who are writing this stuff they think that that God is their warrior God uh, because in every tribe has their warrior God. God's probably saying, guys, I'm not your warrior God, but but I'm glad you're praying to me. Let's keep that line open and keep communicating. And I'm going to... Just because you have try, a wrong idea about you. me not, doesn't mean I'm going to cut the cord. Yeah. Right. And so I'm just going to continue to try to reveal myself and who, who I really am to you. And yeah, your, your whole, you know, your cultural way of understanding things is going to make that hard, but I'm going to work with you and I'm going to be there with you and, and keep, you know keep praying to me and I'll keep revealing myself to you. And that's what happens. That, that's a way that we can read the, the Old Testament all the way through the Bible, right? From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And we can see that. And in the restoration. One of the hermeneutics we have used also is, is kind of a psychological thing. Um, we've talked about this in terms of like the false self and the true self. So we may, we may touch on this. I'm, I'm, I haven't delved as much into this. Uh, all all the stuff that I would use to approach psychological would have come from like Jung or Campbell, and and then uh, Jordan Peterson would be a contemporary here. You know, he's still alive. That has a whole lecture series on the Bible, the psychological significance of um, the Bible stories, and and it's fantastic. I mean, I would oh, recommend yeah. anybody go and and listen to that. If for no other reason than what it does is it it presents to you a totally different way of viewing the Bible stories that's not exclusive, right? Again, he doesn't come and say, this is the right way to understand this. He's saying, this is a way to understand it. And when you see that there is more than one way, all of a sudden you're like, well, if there's more than one, there's thousands, you know? And so it's, but it's a, it's a very useful exercise because it really brings out a lot of stuff. So people might yeah, want to back check that to, out. Back to Carlisle again, right? There are so many ways. There are as many ways to see as there are ways of looking, which mm. is, I think, all I, all we have to say about exegesis, right, is mm. this idea that how you look determines what you see. So yeah. there are going to be as many ways of seeing as there are of looking. What you end up actually carrying away after your, your lens. 
is applied. Well, Ben, we're we're coming to the end of the of the material that we wanted to cover here. This is exciting, and and we want to talk about um, before we finish the podcast too, podcast apps and how to use those and and what that can do for you if, if you don't already know. But we have the the themes of the Bible left to talk about because there there's certain the there's certain themes that show up in the Bible, hmm. and these are the big picture. I'm a big picture guy. So I like to think about these themes. So that's why I wanted to include this in this introductory podcast. So one of the themes that shows up is what's called hieragami or sacred marriage. It's this idea of the marriage between heaven and earth. And this is, I'm, I'm talking about this in, in an archetypal way, right? I can say in a sense that God wants to marry us. This is very much a theme that that is brought out by Rob Bell in another book I love from Rob Bell. I've read this book at least a half a dozen times, maybe a dozen <laughs> times. It's Jesus Wants to Save Christians, which I just think is a great title. Jesus Wants to Save Christians. And it's showing, there are actually a couple of things, that, a couple of themes that show up in that book. One is this idea that God wants to marry us. And the other is that, he's, and you can, this is an image that shows up very much, right? The, the bridegroom. And this is, but it's and it's a little more obvious in the language of the New Testament, but it's there in the Old Testament is what he's seeing. And so we'll, we'll try to bring that out. And then another one is, well, there are a couple more, I guess. There's social justice, right? Social justice is a thing, right? There's, as a matter of fact, you know, the Bible itself tells us most people think the sin of Sodom is sodomy, right? And that's, that should be obvious, right? But that's that's why we call it sodomy. But that's circular, and it's and it's actually contradicted by the Bible itself that tells yeah. us that the sin of Sodom is not taking care of the poor, right? So there's this message of social justice in the Bible and lack of hospitality to to visitors and strangers. Too, right? Yep, there's that too. That's very much an ancient. That that was the first thing I identified before I found that verse that I just mentioned that Ezekiel. I didn't actually give a yeah. reference to. Yeah, it's from Ezekiel. That's right. Um, I thought, well, look, this is, it's to me, it was obvious that, because again, context, right? The context is there's this ancient guest host, a sacred guest host relationship that those men violated. And this is probably something we'll revisit when we get there and as we go through the Bible, but we'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah. And then there's this idea of redemption, right? That God takes people out of slavery, out of Egypt and redeems them and makes them free. That's a big theme in the Bible. And so there's several of the themes that that Rob Bell brings out in his book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians. I love that book. Are there others you can think of, Ben? Other themes? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I think redemption has been identified as not just an overarching theme, but even a specific one of um, that. In, in, in Latter-day Saint tradition, we talk a lot about gathering, which is kind of a right. subset of this of this redemption, right? It's it's a process as part of the redemption. This gathering in of of the people, you know that that can be likened to to the marriage thing as well. So, and covenant also relates to the the idea of right. sacred marriage, right? Yeah. Well, Ben, this has been quite an episode. I I hope it's been of value <laughs> to it. It's a long episode. It's, yeah. I hope it's been of value. We covered a lot of ground. Um, we've, we've made some recommendations of some books. Uh, we've we've let you know, you know, who we are and where we're coming from and where we're going. And if you didn't get all this, don't worry. It's going to come up again over and over as we go through this um, year. 
reading through the Old Testament. I'm really excited to do this with you, Ben. It's it's really just I've been wanting to do this for a long time to really dig deep into the Old Testament to to teach it to learn it. I learn by teaching. I've been teaching. I started teaching. I started tutoring when I was in middle school, tutoring uh, ESL. You know, living in Venezuela mm-hmm. where I already knew English and everybody had to learn English. And I dropped out of high school and started teaching ESL and then became a corporate trainer in Spanish. And then I went back to school and I became a professor. I taught somewhere in there. I taught dance. I taught, I I trained as a ballroom dance instructor. I taught ballroom dance. I ran a sailing school. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I love learning and teaching. And I, for me, one of the best ways to learn is to teach. I take teaching as, as a, as a responsibility very, very seriously. So I'll right. be doing my homework and bringing that to this podcast. Yeah. Well, there, you're right. There is, there's so much there. Um, you know, this is a, this podcast is a digestion of, of, you know, probably a couple dozen books, um, here, uh, just in, in how we're, uh, approaching the old Testament. And, and we knew that this was going to be quite the undertaking, you know, for the Old Testament, because like we mentioned at the beginning, there's a whole lot more uh, tradition and commentary um, uh, about the Old Testament than any other subset scripture or book of in our canon, right? So uh, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the New Testament are all much more recent, especially, you know, Book of Mormon and, and uh, Doctrine and Covenants. So they don't have this history of of commentary and discussion and analysis uh, anywhere near close to what we have with, with the old Testament. And yet it's happening and it's really exciting, right? Yeah. The the biblical criticism is being the, the, the method. Yeah. It's a difference between three, 4,000 years and 150 years, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. And it's being that, you know, the same methodology is being applied to the Quran too. And it's really exciting because it's yielding, you know, again, it's, it's, it's somewhat threatening for people of, of the, of the respective faiths where this is happening, but at the same time, it yields so much. There's a lot that adds to our, that adds to our faith. You know, it really does. I, I really love um, learning these things. And, and I really feel like they do add a lot to my own experience, to my own devotional experience and to my experience of, of the God that has been in my way of thinking, slowly revealing himself across the eons, because he could have just come out all at once and said, here I am, but it's not what he does. He wants us to, to, to walk in faith and to, and to find him. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned that this is being done uh, there, especially like with the Book of Mormon, I think there's a lot of, with the scholarship, there's a lot of stuff that is coming out from applying of the same methodology and things that are learned about, you know, Old Testament culture and, and scripture and, and ways of, of writing and viewing the world that then when we bring those to like the Book of Mormon, which is essentially an Old Testament text. In they're, modern... They're, you know, well, not modern, but in King James English, right? In King James English, right? And yeah. so, so uh, the interesting things that we can pull out from that. Elizabethan anyway, all, English, right? Yeah, Elizabethan, yeah. exactly. So all this to say, you know, we know that this podcast is, is this episode is pushing uh, three hours, but um, the nature of podcasts is, is such that uh, I don't think that should be intimidating to anybody because you, if you're using a podcast app, which you should be, why is that, Ben? <laughs> You're able to pause and, and restart it at any time that you want. I know that there's people that maybe listen to this straight off a website or on YouTube or something, 
and and that's fine. I think that you're you're missing out on some of the experience, and and there's several reasons for that. Well, um, YouTube I think allows you to maybe speed up the um, rate that you're listening to it. I don't, I don't think the website does, and so um, you know if you pause it, it's hard to come back to it at the and stay in the same spot. If you use a podcast app, you know, say on your phone, maybe there's there's some for computers as well, but if say on your phone, you use a podcast app, then it's going to keep track of what you have and haven't listened to with, you know, between episodes, but also within the episode themselves. And so you can, it's much easier to manage that. And so if there happens to be, and I don't know if there is, but if there happen to be any listeners that um, aren't using a podcast app to listen to the podcast, I I really uh, recommend that you do that. um, What are some podcast apps, Ben? And which so one do you use? there's a ton of different ones. I'm on an Android phone. And so um, I've switched between various different ones. The one that I have stuck with for quite a while now is called Podcast Republic. Um, and I've just found it to, to be well organized and easy to use. And it works best with my headset controls because I use a Bluetooth headset. And so I can listen to podcasts no matter what I'm doing or where I am on my okay. Bluetooth headset and, and stop and start it whenever. So. I'm on Apple um, right now, and I've gone back and forth, and I've even used both at the same time and swapped out the SIM card. And so there's Apple Podcasts. That's one. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, while while we're talking about uh, Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, (laughs) please. Let us us know what you think of the podcast, too. Yeah. And and by the way, there's – I wish there were a way in podcast apps to actually comment on episodes. You can't do that. In a podcast app, that's something that's missing. It has has so many benefits, but that's one thing Mm. that's missing. You can do that on YouTube. These podcasts are on YouTube and you can actually comment there. And you can also on social media, right? When the podcast is, when it comes out and it's shared on social media, you can comment there. And, and, you know, we're looking at those. I mean, I'm not on Facebook, but Ben is and and others with Latter-day Peace Studies. Um, and I hear, by the way, even I, I hear from those who are on Facebook, uh, when something shows up on Facebook, I appreciate that Ben and, and Shiloh and, and Lindsay and others, um, Desiree. So, and Riley, of course. So, you know, there's, there's that ability to be able to comment on, on a particular episode and to have a conversation on social media and on, um, YouTube, but what are some other, so, oh, I didn't mention which podcast app I use. So I use Stitcher. Stitcher's yeah. one that's available Stitcher's for both platforms. Yeah. I love Stitcher. It's just my favorite podcast app. So whether I'm on Android or um, iOS, I use Stitcher. I love it. Yeah, that would probably be a good one to go to for for any platform for for people to to use. So, so you can pause. It will keep your place. You can uh, so so no matter how long the episode is you can just listen to it whenever you want. You can skip from this episode to another one and come back to this one. It's going to keep your you place switch, no matter what. Totally switch podcasts, you know, go listen you to a different yeah, podcast exactly. and then come back and it's got your sitting. You'll you know. never lose your place. I love that. You can listen. Uh, if, if we go, if we're going for three hours and you don't want, you want to spend three hours and you want to go through it all at once, play it at two times speed, get through it in an hour and a half. <laughs> you can do that. Um, what if else, we talk, ben? if we talk really fast and then you play it at two times speed, it'd be difficult. <laughs> I, I typically settle around, uh, you know, depends on, on what I'm listening to, but, uh, you know, sometimes somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5 speed, um, is right. where I can settle on, on listening to stuff. Um, and, and that works out well, you know, you can digest a little bit more, uh, that way. So I've listened to you in, uh, Shadow at two times speed. 
It can be done. It can be done. Yeah. <laughs> well, anything else, Ben, about uh, podcast apps? Uh, not that I can think of. Okay. Well, do you have anything else you want to add, Ben? No. Um, I think we've we've covered uh, you know a, an enormous amount today. And uh, yeah. again, I hope that this episode can be one that people will come back to 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 kind of reference topics or, or concepts and to get refresher on them and then you know, be able to go and, and research their own on, on these types of things, uh, read those books or listen to those books. Um, the, they're really beneficial to do that. So Ben, this brings up a question in my mind. I don't know the answer to this one. Is there a bookmark capability in a podcast app like there is with audiobooks? Um, You mean besides pausing it? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I mean that you would be able to make a bookmark so that you could come back to oh. more than one place, right? There might be, but I've not used that feature in my podcast app if there is. I've never and seen so it. I've never I've noticed. Never, it, that would be really helpful with a long episode. Yeah, like that this, might be. If you wanted to go, you know, make reference to it again and sure. again and find specific parts of it, right? Sure, sure. That's a good point. Well, all right, Ben. It's been a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to going through the Old Testament with you this year. Yeah, me as well. So... Uh, we'll we'll sign off for this time. So for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you for listening.